Generation, Red Pill. You know us, just two guys going beyond conspiracy theories, taking you right into the heart of the conspiracy itself. I'm Jason Spears with my co-host, Christopher Dean. I am not Groot. Join us as we go behind enemy lines to reveal the truth about another aspect of this occult matrix as we discuss in this week's Intel Briefing. The film over your eyes, Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 1. Is Marvel's 1980s throwback series just comic relief to offset the darkness of universal domination by Thanos, or was it designed to incite a visceral rebellion against our creator and Lord Jesus Christ? We're going to talk about that and more coming up right here on Operation Red Pill, the film over your eyes. Ladies, gentlemen, Ascavarians, even mad titans, everyone from across the podverse, welcome back to another segment of The Film Over Your Eyes, where we try to help you see the subtle messaging embedded in popular TV shows and films, many of which have content that is aimed at reprogramming your mind so you think less like Christ and more like Satan. We have got a galactic, astronomical amount of stuff to talk about today. We're going to get into things like the toxic effects of dysfunctional family units, Gnosticism, and the continual inversion that Hollywood feeds us, and how Guardians of the Galaxy teaches and glorifies rebellion. But before we get into any of that, first things first, Christopher Dean. How you doing, bro? I'm doing pretty good, man. How about yourself? Not bad. Not bad. I'm more and more, I'm loving the, the transitions that you do. What are you talking about? Well, a lot of, the, a lot of our show takes both of us. Uh-huh. Right. So concepts, even uh, pictures, slides, you know, everything we do is kind of a two. It's two, a team effort. It is. But there's these little nuggets of things that I I just do independently. You trust me to do. And there's little things that you do. And it's it's so great just to see kind of your personality come out. The, the ladies and gentlemen, ask a variant. It was great. And uh, what was it? I think a couple weeks ago you did Lincoln log builders. And they're just killing me. I love it. I oh, love it. You got to find little ways to engage the audience. <laughs> it's you know? great. It's you, great. You got to do that. That's kind of funny. You mentioned that, man, because I was sitting around trying to find another thing to say. Uh huh. And I don't know why ask a variant popped up into my head. <laughs> But then it's probably because I've watched this film so many times in preparation for these these two episodes we're gonna do. Yeah, I, I did. I did the same. It just starts to stick with you, uh huh. Which is really really funny, the ways that <laughs> it'll come back out. You'll you'll be talking to somebody about the UN and how you know you you don't think that the Ascavarians are really getting the. Uh... <laughs> The proper treatment and the type of resources they deserve. Right. They're not represented the way they should be. They really should be as an oppressed minority. <laughs> I feel like we should have an Askavarian ambassador. Right. Have you even ever heard of them? See, the fact that you haven't heard of them tells you how <laughs> oppressed they are. Exactly. I nominate myself as Askavarian ambassador. In fact, you could say I'll be the first Negro AA. <laughs> I don't think they're going to go for it. Probably not. <laughs> well, Christopher, let's talk. Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 1. I come from Earth, a planet of outlaws. My name is Peter Quill. There's one other name you might know me by. Star-Lord. Who? So here we are. A thief. Two thugs. 
assassin and a maniac. But we're not going to stand by as evil wipes out the galaxy. I guess we're stuck together. Partners. Are you telling me the fate of 12 billion people is in the hands of these criminals? Oh, yeah. I look around, you know what I see? Losers. But life's giving us a chance. To do what? Something good? Something bad? A bit of both. Oh, what the hell? I don't got that long a lifespan anyway. So what'd you think of it, bro? That's rough. (laughs) Okay, so we got a problem. Okay. It's kind of like what happened, I think, two or three uh, Film of Your Eyes episodes ago. Okay. Initial rating of this film, Mm -hmm. I was going to put at an empty bucket. Really? That low? That I. First time I encountered Guardians of the Galaxy, I hated it. Okay. Um, wasn't familiar with any of the the plot, the storyline. I mean, not the plot. I wasn't familiar with any of the characters. Couldn't understand why we were going from the Avengers into this cosmic realm with these Guardians. Why, if we had Avengers that were responsible for doing protecting, what were these Guardians about? Like, it was, it was a huge leap for me. Okay. And then I got into the film, and I was just like, I don't get it. So I, I, I would put it, I was going to put it at an empty, but empty bucket. Well, having gone back, having looked at it, um, and it's kind of unfair to the film because we're going, at least for me, I'm going back having seen the full arc of the Infinity Saga. And now this makes sense. Okay. Whereas when I was introduced to it years ago, because this is a pretty old film. And and I'll put that in air quotes, old for for Marvel, right? <laughs> it's black and white, almost. It's as close to it. Um, I didn't have any of that. Okay. So to be fair, I'd have to say now I'd give it. I give I give it a full bucket. Okay. And for those that don't know, we have the Operation Rating Pill, Operation Red Pill. Wow, rating system. Which is where we go from empty bucket to half bucket, full bucket, and then if it just blows your mind, buttery bucket. This is our our scale for how we rate movies. Exactly. You're giving it a full bucket? I give it a full. Okay. How about you? Me, I'm probably going to have to go buttery. This is the first time. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're giving it a buttery bucket rating? I am. Dude, you do you know how hard you are on movies? <laughs> yes, yes. And it, I, I And this one gets a buttery bucket. It feels some type of way. Like I, now, I, ladies and gentlemen, you can't understand right now. I am completely <laughs> flabbergasted. I cannot believe what I'm seeing right now. Yeah, it's I mean, I have I have some things that that I that I feel some type of way about, but what I realized when preparing for this episode is I am right in the crosshairs 
I am the target audience for this film. Really? What do you mean by that? Well, the the um, the time that I grew up, I, I kind of grew up listening to some of the oldies that are in this. So I was, I was born in 86. Uh, so it wasn't really my genre, right? It wasn't my thing. Okay. But I grew up in a house and older brothers and sisters that like were still kind of tampering with these things. So it instilled in me this nostalgia for it now right or what are we talking soundtrack sound yeah the soundtrack so okay. the, the music for it which by the way i hate it which is yeah we're, we're very different people we are <laughs> it was one of the reasons i was giving it an empty bucket that's so crazy because each song that they picked it, it hit my heart the way that it wanted to like all of the propaganda all of the cues everything hit me exactly how it should and the fact that I, I was president of a motorcycle club mm -hmm. for a while, mm -hmm. so I get this whole, uh, you know, Peter Quill and this band of misfits, you know, trying to do good things. Like, I'm telling you, every bit of this movie was fashioned for an audience like me. That is so funny. So, you know how I'm, I'm talking to you? You know, I have this joke with people. I'm like, your inner racism is leaking out. Okay. So, I have the same problem. <laughs> right that your racism leaks out it, it does from time to time right <laughs> guy's still working on me he's, he's getting that out okay but i'm watching this movie and i remember the first time watching it what i got irritated about was the soundtrack first okay. and foremost and my initial thought was what are all these white people songs in here <laughs> like what where there ain't nothing hit I, there's no bass i can't tap my foot to nothing who picked these these songs <laughs> right uh huh. And then doing some of the research, which we'll talk about later, I developed a unique appreciation for. Okay. But I was also like, yeah, I got to get some of that racism out. <laughs> That's funny. Man, these can't just be white people's songs. These, <laughs> these can be songs, right? They don't uh -huh. have to be for the melanin deficient. They could be bass deficient. We could say that. <laughs> and I was okay. like, yeah, I'm going to have to update my language <laughs> a little bit. It was It was a little painful. All right. But even so much like the opening sequence is Quill dancing. Mm -hmm. And like, I've been on bike trips. There's a freedom you get in a full face helmet that no one really knows who you are. Okay. So there's been several times on trips that whether it be at a stop sign, a intersection, a parking lot, like you just do all these stupid dances because, I mean, you're you're out there having a good time. So I'm not saying like buttery bucket, everyone needs to know that this is the highest rating Right, but okay. this is definitely for me. The way that I interacted with the film, definitely buttery bucket for me. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm still shocked, man. This is, <laughs> this is a historical moment. I'm shocked too. <laughs> uh, there is no way if you'd bet me money, there's no way I would have said you'd give this a buttery. I didn't think you would give anything a buttery except maybe Star Wars. No, but uh, Star Wars won't get buttery. It won't. No. I mean, I, I, okay, I take that back. I'm quite sure Top Gun is going to get buttery. And if not, I'm going to be searching for a new best friend here shortly. Right. That's what I was buttery for Top Gun. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. But anything other than that, <laughs> I'm like, nah, he's not going to do that. It's funny because, I mean, not to beat a dead horse, but I wouldn't have given it buttery before going back and rewatching. So to answer the question that you asked me, We'll save that for next week's episode. We're going to save it for next week? Yeah, yeah. People don't even know what the question is. All right, well, ask the question. Does viewing 
a film a second time ever result in you liking the film less? We'll save that for <laughs> next week. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. But it wasn't just the fact that I reacted, but the fact that I was perceptive and I saw the little things that it did and the way that I responded and, and the little ways that I did identify with certain characters and the way the story was told. I was like, this is really, it, it's well-crafted because of, I, I think I responded the way that they wanted me to, if that makes sense. You know what I'm saying? No, it does make sense. And I'm glad you used that term crafted. One of the things I, I really have begun to appreciate about films, the more that we do these segments and I have to do research mm -hmm. and preparation for the segment, I appreciate the fact that films are a combined product. Okay. And there's a fair amount of thought that seems to go into these films. Mm -hmm. Right? And, and and whether it's their construction, whether it's the way they're shot, whether it's the storyboarding, the lighting, special effects, all of this stuff has to come together to produce the film that we see and to have the commensurate effect on the audience. Mm -hmm. And it's caused me to really appreciate the fact that within that, there are multiple things happening that I'm not always aware of. Like, in fact, I think my, one of my biggest takeaways in doing this research is realizing I'm missing a lot of what's being put in front of me. Like, I'm just not catching it. Okay. And sometimes it's basic stuff. I'm like, how did I miss that? You know, take some of these breakdowns and you go and you, you watch these people's analysis of it. And you're like, there's no way all of that was happening. <laughs> and I didn't catch that. Right? Yeah. Uh-huh. But what it does is it actually helps remind me of the reality that when it comes to films, there are at least three stories being told. Three overarching stories. Okay. That's one of the things that we like to, to remind people of around here. You have a story being told in the foreground, one being told in the midground, and one being told in the background. Now, the foreground, or, or let's start at the, the, uh, the end. So in the background, you're going to have spiritual messaging. Okay. Right? Mm -hmm. And you're only going to get that. You're only going to be able to ascertain really what that is by looking at biblically-based analysis from, in, from platforms like LED Ministries or even ORP. Right, because we try to do that. Exactly. Then you move to the mid-ground, and the mid-ground is where you get themes and ideas that are being told to you. Mm -hmm. And you'll see that broken down on YouTube movie reviews, like uh, ones done by Ryan Airy from Screen Crush or Eric Voss from at New Rockstars. But then there's the, the main story. That's being told in the foreground, right up in front of you. Uh -huh. And that's what you'll get when you go search Google or Wikipedia, and you're like, what is this film about? Okay. Right, so these three aspects are all being told to you at once. And it's not easy to consciously perceive what's being told to you and analyze it. It's not. I noticed specifically in this movie, and again, like I said, I'm, I'm target audience, but after even watching some of the uh, like mid-ground breakdowns, mm -hmm. you know, Screen Crush and some stuff that they talked about, I had to keep reminding myself that that's what I'm looking for. I had to keep pulling myself out of the movie and, and look for things outside of just the cinematic experience. That you're, that's being told to you in the, in the foreground. Yeah. Yeah, that main story has a way of catching your attention, your conscious attention. 
there's like there's like a gravity to it that it, it, it really does draw you in. It does, and it really takes a concerted effort to constantly pull yourself away from that. Uh huh. It's not easy. No, and it was a little unsettling. Why so? Just the fact that if you're, what do they say about temptation? Like you don't know you realize you're being tempted unless you try to resist it or something like that. Like you don't realize that a movie has this power until you try to resist it. Yeah, it's kind of like you don't realize how strong a current is until you try swimming upstream. Yeah. Yeah. All of a sudden, you're like, oh, my goodness, this thing is really pushing me. Yeah, you jump in, and you're going downstream, and everything's hunky-dory. Right. This is fun. Yeah. You try to resist it, and you're like, oh. This sucks. Yeah, there's a little bit of force behind this. Especially if there's a waterfall at the end. (laughs) Yeah. Right? So for people who are unfamiliar with Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, let's give them uh, a quick synopsis here. All right, do it. So Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1 is a superhero film released by Disney in 2014, based on Marvel Comics' superhero team of the same name. It's the 10th film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the fourth installment of Phase 2. It cost roughly $232 million U.S., and the film earned $773 million U.S., which is the equivalent of 3.33 times its budget. That's interesting. Yeah, that wasn't (laughs) lost on me when I did the math. All right. Now, the film was released on July 31st of 2014 internationally and on August 1st, 2014 in the United States. And it went on to become the third highest grossing film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe behind Avengers and Iron Man 3. Interesting. Now, for those who haven't seen this film, may have forgotten what it's about. Guardians of the Galaxy is an action-packed epic space adventure that expands the Marvel Cinematic Universe into the cosmos where brash adventurer Peter Quill, played by Chris Pratt, finds himself the object of an unrelenting bounty hunt after stealing a mysterious orb, which is later discovered to be one of six universe-creating relics called Infinity Stones. These stones are coveted by a powerful villain with ambitions that threaten the entire universe whose name is Ronan, and he's portrayed by Lee Pace. To evade the ever-present Ronan, Quill is forced into an uneasy truce with a quartet of desperate misfits, Rocket, a gun-toting raccoon voiced by Bradley Cooper, Groot, a tree-like humanoid voiced by Vin Diesel, the deadly and enigmatic Gamora, a cybernetically altered assassin played by the very lovely Zoe Zaldana, and the revenge-driven Drax the Destroyer, portrayed by Dave Bautista. But when Quill discovers the true power of the orb and the menace it poses to the cosmos, he must do his best to rally his ragtag group of rivals for a last desperate stand with the galaxy's fate in the balance. Yeah. They should pay me. <laughs> I think that was pretty good. That's not bad. That's not bad. So, Christopher, what would be your your take on the film as a whole? Uh, it, it was really enjoyable. I think so, so many parts of it were well done. So I talked about how I am the target audience. Mm-hmm. But things like uh, there's one of the scenes where Rocket is uh, – He's answering why Groot only speaks and I am Groot, right? Peter Quill gets irritated <laughs> and Rocket's like, well, because he doesn't know good talking like you and me. You know, his vocabulary, vocabulistics is limited to yes. I and am and Groot. And I was like, wow. In that particular order. I am Groot. 
Well, that's just as fascinating as the first 89 times you told me that. What is wrong with giving tree here? Well, he don't know talking good like me and you. So his vocabulistics is limited to I and am and Groot. Exclusively in that order. The way that some writers are able to kind of deconstruct and rebuild the English language, I think is so clever. Like what? Vocabulistics? Yeah, vocabulistics right after he don't know talking good like you and me. Like, hold on, wait. So are you, do you know what you're talking about or yeah, not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it yeah. just plays on all these dynamics. And there's so many moments of um, intentional genius, if you will, just throughout the movie. Okay. Did you have like a favorite moment in the film? Oh, you'd think that preparing for this episode, I would have come up with. I would figure any film that got a buttery rating from you <laughs> has got to have at least one favorite moment. Um, I don't know. One scene that I found that I I kept going back and rewatching is the uh, the whole dance off with Ronan at the end. Okay. I don't know why it just it it tickled me. Ronan is like, what are you doing? And Quill's like, I'm distracting you, you big turd blossom. And I don't know. I just thought I thought that was great. You get amused by, by the weirdest things. I know. I'm I'm aware of that. I'm aware <laughs> of that. The the one thing though that I think sets it apart from a majority of uh the other films is that it's it's much more of a comedy. Yeah, I think I appreciate that. You would. <laughs> right but yeah so did you have any takeaways favorite scenes anything like that uh, for me yeah I, overall i think it was a good film for what it, i think it was designed to do introducing you to these characters who are not earthbound introducing you to their world which is way more cosmic and much bigger than just earth and the things we've seen up until that point um i, I think it did a very good job and this is the first film and what's going to end up being a trilogy. You're introducing characters that the audience is not familiar with at all. That means we got to get used to their personalities. We have to get used to their backstories. We have to understand what motivates them. I thought they did a good job with all of that. Um, and the fact that two of the main characters are CGI. And you don't pick up the fact that they're, I mean, you know they're CGI, but their performance doesn't degrade the overall performance of live action. Yeah, because when you said that, I had to go back and think, who are they? See what I'm saying? Yeah, that that interesting. That's interesting. very good directing and acting, in my in my opinion. Yeah, uh, and the the graphic artist I think did a phenomenal job bringing these characters to life, and the voice actors uh, Vin Diesel and Bradley Cooper I think did an excellent job providing vocal depth to the character, particularly Vin Diesel, because he's only got I am Groot those three words to really work with, except for the, the one time in the film where he, there's a variation of it and it says, we are group. Right. Right. But still that's all he's ever saying. So basically in order to communicate different contextual values, vocabulistics, you know, <laughs> he has to change his inflection. He has to change his cadence. Mm -hmm. Well, they say that, uh, what is it? Eighty percent of communication is body language, and fifteen percent is tone. So only five percent is the actual words that are coming out of your mouth. Which that, means when you're writing an email or a text message or something like that. That's why my uh, grammar is so terrible because it only accounts for five percent of what I'm saying. What? 
I was like, I try not to embarrass my best friend. <laughs> I really do. But sometimes you set up these grand slams that I almost can't resist swinging. Well, you know what? Let's let's not make this about me. I was really just trying to bring up the fact that it. Um, Really, the, don't the, make it about me, but I was just trying. Vin Diesel. We're talking about how great Vin Diesel was as group. I just can't help overlook the fact that, as you say, I'm not trying to make it about me. You go to a personal, personal definitive. I'm I. desperate here. I'm, try, <laughs> I'm trying to get out of the way of fire. <laughs> no, the crosshairs are on you. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so I, I, I appreciated that. I think if I had to have one moment in this film... That's kind of a, a a takeaway or a scene stealer for me. It would probably be Benito del Toro's character, the collector. Okay. When he first sees Groot, and he's like, "What is that?" And he said, "That's Groot." He said, "I've never met a Groot before, sir. You must let me own your carcass at the time of death, of course." I was like, "How do you buy somebody's carcass to put <laughs> into a collection? Like that's a fairly twisted mentality." A little bit. That that's your first thought? What, that it's twisted? No, that, that you want their corpse. Oh, yeah, because you're a collector. Yeah. Now, being a person who collects a lot, I could appreciate it. But I thought it was hilarious that he just moved right to offer to buy your corpse. I was like, everything's for sale in this world. That's such a capitalistic mindset. Yeah. I was like, that's crazy. Hmm. What about my, just about my only, uh, okay, that's one of my takeaways. The other one would be Drax. I found Dave Bautista's humor hilarious. I find your response to his humor hilarious. What do you mean? I don't think it's that funny. Like, it's kind of funny. It's like, you know, chuckle, ha-ha, funny. But the way that it hits you... I'm I'm laughing at you laughing at Drax, is is what happens. (laughs) Drax has me cracking up because the way it's delivered is so deadpan. Yeah. It's not meant to be funny from the position of Drax. Like, Drax is not delivering it as a joke. Mm -hmm. But the fact that it's so not funny to him in the context of what's happening makes it hilarious. Yeah. Like, when Rocket's like, these people people don't understand metaphors. Like, everything goes over their head. And he's like, nothing would go over my head. My reflexes are too good. I would snatch it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, okay. Stuff like that. When but, it has those moments. But your laughter around it makes it so much better. Like, there's been several jokes that I told you from The Office, uh-huh. and that you've gone back and listened to them, and you're like, your delivery was way better. Okay. I think your delivery of the deadpan jokes from Drax are funnier than Drax's delivery. Really? Yeah. That's hilarious. All right, so you got to call James Gunn, the director, <laughs> and just tell him I need, a, I need a role. I need to voice Drax. Okay. Batista can act him. Hey, if I got his number, I'll give him a call. Right. But if, I think if we got James Gunn's number, we're going to have to talk to him about some of the other things we saw, like some of the messaging within the mid-ground part. Yes. Yes. Because apparently, and I didn't know he did this, but in watching some of the Ryan Airy stuff, he actually was tweeting out that there was hidden stuff in the movie that people hadn't found yet. Yeah. Like, he seems to have that type of interaction with his, his audience. Right. But apparently there are these Easter eggs, and there's one... Un- undiscovered Easter egg yes, that he's put in the films. And when the people are trying to, to actually figure out what it is, they text or they tweet James Gunn uh-huh. and he's given out ratings. Like you're 70% there. You're about 85%, but nobody's found it or figured it out yet. I might've figured it out. Okay. 
But but before we get there, just the fact that there are hidden messages and coming from the director, they're tweeting about them. Anyone that's like, ah, you're reaching or this stuff isn't there. I mean, you have this director interacting on social media that, hey, I put hidden messages in this film and nobody's found them yet. Right, right. They're there. They really do exist and they are there. Yeah, that's a good point. So what were some of the messages you saw in this film that stuck out to you? One of them uh, I thought was pretty interesting um, and kind of also highlighted from uh, Ryan Airy from Screen Crush is this, this kind of conflict theory. He doesn't call it that, but you have this might makes right that kind of the, the functioning superpowers in this particular universe and wow, dealing with space actually makes talking about it a little bit, a little bit difficult. How so? Well, when we talk about like the worldview and the u- the universe of a of a film, mm-hmm. um, we're we're not just talking about like the 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 cosmic aspect to it, right? Correct. So when you're dealing in cosmic spaces, you still have a worldview. You can, but I said universe, so I was like, interesting, because there's the film takes place in a larger universe, but there is a particular universe that's being presented ideologically gotcha. in the movie. Right. Anyway, for that universe, you have the 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 people, the movers and shakers, are all ultimately powerful, right? You have Thanos, you have Ronan. And they are just ruling with an iron fist. And everyone else is either, you know, squirming to get out of the way or trying to make treaties with them and that kind of thing. So you have the the um, the haves and the have-nots. You know, it's kind of this, this conflict theory, this power struggle. In the movie, when you're dealing with these, these lesser beings, these re- rebel, rebellious-type people are moving against those that actually have power. So it's this uh, ideologically, it fights against the idea that might makes right. Just because you've got power doesn't mean that you get to keep it and we can come together and kind of um, dethrone you, if that makes sense. Interesting. Yeah. And and this was one that I I had to watch it a couple times to get this kind of consistent theme that... These are the people that are in charge and they're just dealing with raw power. And then this other group of people is dealing with either community or cooperation or, or whatever. It was kind of interesting. I'll tell you something that uh, I recognize something that I found interesting was the, the toxic effects of dysfunctional family units. Okay. And this is one of those things that's not readily apparent. You kind of have to put together the plot and then think about, the things that you're told within it Mm -hmm. to kind of have this takeaway. And it's the fact that those things are not connected, which makes them so dangerous because it's easy to pass through your filter. Okay. When they're connected, it's like, okay, I can, it's kind of like if I don't recommend ever doing this, but it's like, if you try to sneak a gun through a metal detector or an x-ray, right. But you break it up. A self-incriminating. I just said, I don't recommend doing it. I never said I tried it. But there was a documentary I was watching. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, if you if you break it apart mm-hmm. into its constituent pieces, it may not seem that deadly. 
And if you don't have a person trained to recognize the parts, then it can pass through undetected. Like some people have tried that. Luckily, there's there's artificial software that's running on the imaging, and it can highlight the parts of a gut, even if you break them up. So you got to get yourself some some Holy Spirit software that can put these pieces together for you. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, if a person wants to, absolutely. You, you have to have. You definitely need the Holy Spirit's enablement of discernment to be able to piece these things together because they're they're broken up intentionally. Mm-hmm. I wish I had the audio clip of this, but I was watching a behind the scenes featurette. And one of the statements that James Gunn, the director of this film, stated was that he said at a certain point, it's almost like this invisible hand takes over the project. Really? Said it right out of his mouth. Huh. And I was like, that's crazy. See, now if we say it, some people might think we're reaching, right? They might think we're making it up. Mm -hmm. But even the director recognizes it's almost like something else seems to take over and influence the decisions and the outcome of this product. That's such a consistent idea. Cause I mean, Jim Carrey said that about the, the, just the character, the Grinch, that this thing said, move out the way I'm, I'm going to do this now. So Jim, yes. What does Christmas mean to you? Hmm. Every movie I've gotten in my life, I could tell you how that was the absolute manifestation of my consciousness at that time. I'm the Grinch that stole Christmas. When I heard I had the part, please welcome Jim Carrey. It's as if I went into a fugue state. Being the Grinch, and Hyde showed up. That story is just such a part of Christmas. So yeah, it was incredibly important not to screw it up. What happened after was out of my control. It was not me. I was not making choices based on what Jim does. Here's your motivation. He felt it was necessary for him to stay in the character. Whatever it was, just keep it kind of loosey-goosey. At some point, he tapped me on the shoulder and said, sit down, I'll be doing my movie. Action! The attitude was already there. When you put that makeup on, there's no choice. That nose, the jowls. Universal didn't want the footage we took behind the scenes to surface so that people wouldn't think I was an asshole. You're gonna have people that are gonna sue this production for mental stress. Hey, yeah! Yeah, there's feelings of guilt. Feelings like, damn, I lost control again. To him. It was absurd. It was completely absurd. And some of it becomes a little bit real. When the movie was over, I couldn't remember who I was anymore. I'm the Grinch. I'm the Grinch. So you step through the door not knowing what's on the other side. And what's on the other side is everything. I know him as well as I can know him. But uh, who do you know, even when they're right in front of you? Yeah, that was a spirit, dude, that you were flirting with. So do you think, and I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but we get crippled by this idea of evolution, right? The evolution is in and of itself its own thing, right? So if you we talk about the the mid-ground, the background, the foreground, all these elements of a movie coming together, and then this invisible hand just puts it together, and the movie just evolved, right? Exactly, but that would be a logical fallacy. Right. The The indoctrination of evolution 
cripples us from being able to perceive. What did you talk about the uh, um, a couple weeks ago? The the fro, the the false reality overlay. Yeah. Yeah, it creates this false reality overlay. So then when someone says, oh, an invisible hand just came in and orchestrated it. Well, it's clearly evolution. It's the invisible hand of evolution. And you're talking about all of these things that can only result of an intelligent mind, right? Exactly. But we just assume that it's a nothing. Right, 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 right. It, it's, it's interesting. It's so infuriating. Yeah. Right? I mean, you're trying to get people to understand, hey, you just sat for two and a half hours, three hours in some cases, mm -hmm. and you just took in this, this production that's designed to appeal to your mind and your, your, your auditory senses, your visual cortex, all of that, and actually begin to teach you things. All of that did not happen by chance, right? right. If it right. did, then the credits would be much shorter. Uh-huh. But we have these super duper long credits and everybody's got to get their flowers <laughs> yeah. because, and rightfully so, they committed to this intellectual property. Yeah. Well, then this was not something that evolved. Right. This was something that was directed. This is something that was created by the combined efforts of multiple intelligent beings. Mm -hmm. So you can't look at a movie and go, what do you mean that there are hidden themes in there? Oh, there ain't. <laughs> yeah. Did you want to go into the the broken families anymore? Or? Well, yeah, because I, I don't think I really even articulated right, that. Right. Sorry, I kind of derailed us. No, but thanks for bringing me back to it. So this broken family unit becomes apparent when you look at, like I was saying, the backstory. So you have Peter Quill, um, who loses his mother in the opening parts of the of the film. In fact, this film even starts out with death, which was a lot to deal with. Yeah, I, I told you that. because So we talked about it being a comedy. It is a really, really dark beginning. Yeah, but most comedies, by definition, have tragedy as part of the comedic formula. Is it because you need levity to recover from the first 30 seconds of this film? No, no. I just think that there's probably a... An, Unfortunately, I don't have the definition in front of me, but in in theater, I believe that a comedy is not necessarily something that makes you laugh. No, a comedy is just one where the people survive at the end. The protagonist survives at the end. That's it? I'm fairly certain that's what it is. So I thought tragedy is a component of this whole quote-unquote comedy. Well, tragedy is when someone dies at the end. And a comedy is where they survive. Mm -hmm. But isn't there, okay, isn't there some sort of trial or something they're put through? Well, usually, I mean, there's even, what is it, seven or five basic plot lines or whatever. But as far as comedy and tragedy, it's just how the protagonist ends up at the end. Because okay. the divine comedy is the whole story of Dante, right? And he goes down into the inferno and right. then, you know, what is it, um, inferno... Uh, um, what's the middle one? Uh, the Catholic belief that there's a uh, purgatory. Yeah, so there's Inferno, Purgatorio, and then Paradiso. So it's in in three stages. No part of this is funny, right? But Dante survives at the end. So which is why it's called the Divine Comedy. Interesting. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's interesting. But if you look at uh, Peter Quill, so he loses his mother and his father is absent. 
Yes. He gets kidnapped and basically gets a surrogate father. But even that, he got kidnapped by a group of ravagers. Uh-huh. Which means that the people he'll call family are really just a gang. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily they're looking out for him or providing for proper the proper responsibilities that a that a family's charged with. They're they're a club. They're not a gang. They're just ravaging enthusiasts. They are a gang. <laughs> and you find this out in greater detail in volume two. <laughs> I don't care what sort of euphorism spin, euphemistic spin you try to put on this, sir. Uh, that's funny. Uh, but you see it with Peter Quill. You see it with Gamora, who is the abducted daughter uh, of Thanos. And Thanos was her abductor. She's right. the abductee. Uh, you see it with Nebula. Mm-hmm. She also, too, comes from a dysfunctional family unit. You see it with Rocket, who apparently was taken from his home world. Uh, Groot, who apparently, according to Marvel lore, lost his family, I believe, in a war. Think so. And I think he's the last of his species, right? Something like that. Okay, you see it with a lot of the characters, a lot of the main characters. Drax, his family was destroyed. Mm-hmm. So we have this this theme of dysfunctional families running around in the background, and somehow this is supposed to produce a functional family between these mis- misfits. That's interesting. I hadn't really put it together like that. Because in the real world, typically, if you have a dysfunctional or a broken family, you end up, you are more likely to become part of the criminal element, right? Mm-hmm. What is it, like 70% of um, people in the prison system had fatherless homes or something like that? I don't know what the percentage is, but I know it's pretty high. Yeah. So it's interesting that this is an accurate representation of that, that you have all of these broken units and you have the assassins and you have the thugs and you have the thieves and everything. But it's interesting that you say that they come together and kind of form their own family. Interesting. It was one of the things that James Gunn said he wanted to portray. Okay. Was that many times you're dealing with, I take this back, I think this was Dave Bautista that was pointing this out, that in today's culture, the traditional family unit is not that traditional. (laughs) Right? Okay. If it was... Batista that was pointing this out, that would be interesting because from my understanding, uh, his mother is gay. Okay. So um, his perspective of family unit would be different from the biblical family unit model. Right. Uh, And he's become an advocate for that. Interesting. So even being part of a project where they're presenting an alternative family unit is, is interesting. Now, I understand that not all family units are blood related Mm -hmm. and that's okay. Yeah. Well, I I call you my brother. Right. And I call you my brother. Yeah. But we're Uh, not related. We're not blood Blood. related. You know, your parents call me son Mm -hmm. and vice versa. Right. Um, It is possible to have a, a family with members in it that are not blood related. I think where the danger comes in here with this is that this is not just non blood related entities coming together in fact this is not even human non-blood related people coming together this is a combination of hybrids aliens cybernetic life forms Mm -hmm. i'm not even sure if there's one actual full-blood human being present in this His, his 
mom that dies in the beginning. I mean, within the Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, I gotcha. I gotcha. Within that unit. Yeah, I don't think so. It's kind of fascinating by itself. I'd also want to highlight, like, not only is it a distortion because you're mixing all of these different types, these non-human types, but we've talked before about how Edward Bernays talked about the fact that the motion picture is such a great way to um, spread propaganda because it sets the um, the habits and the ideas of of a nation. So it it determines what's normal, right? Mm-hmm. And like you were saying, there's nothing wrong with being able to make something out of tragedy or brokenness or whatever, but to adopt the idea because everyone in this film, like you're saying, is non-human. Everyone in this film is, you know, comes from a broken home. That it cre- it builds this habit in the culture that this is normal. So this is the this is the new standard. Right. And one of the things the Holy Spirit was just pointing out to me, that the what has to be understood is that the family unit is the smallest structure of a social unit, mm-hmm. of a society, right? Yeah. And so if you're putting a family together based on lines that don't help the society out at large, mm-hmm. then it's not a good family unit to be in. Okay. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That's kind of the, the dividing line. Well, it's like we talk about siding in an idea, right? Yeah. So it, you know, a couple feet in front of you, okay, it doesn't look that much different than a traditional family. It's not that bad. Right. They're all kind of nice to each other. Right. They bicker like most siblings would, <laughs> so it, it doesn't seem that that off. Right, but you take it way down range, and, and that minute shift in the very beginning, be, you're you're not even hitting the target. Downrange. Exactly. This is a quote unquote, a family quote unquote of criminals, mm-hmm. misfits, rebels. This is not something that should be in a family unit. Right. That's the the biggest problem. On top of that, there begins to be interbreeding between these different species. Yeah. That creates another issue because we get very comfortable seeing that. Mm-hmm. You know, you have Peter Quill who represents uh, humanity, uh-huh. although he's he's part human, part something else, which you'll you'll find out in volume two. But he is attracted to Gamora, mm-hmm. and Gamora is a cybernetically enhanced alien. Alien. <laughs> so as they play out their love story. It is a love story. In fact, there's one trailer. There, there's one particular trailer. I don't know why they cut this scene, but it's a, a quick clip. You see Gamora, I think, getting out of a bed. She doesn't. You see the back of her. Right. She doesn't have her shirt on. Right. It's that quintessential post-love making exactly. scene. Yeah. We know what went down, uh-huh. Gamora. Uh-huh. And what is that? Peter, Peter Quill was getting it in with Gamora? Yeah. I mean, she's she's only green. It's not. I mean, it's not that bad. I don't blame him. Eh, well, yes, Zoe's hot. We all know this. I didn't say that. Yeah, that was I just what said, you were I alluding understand to. the plight of the the protagonist. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, all yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, and in a general sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I hear you. <laughs> I, I understand his plight too. Oh, uh, that's funny. But do you, you see how that conditions people to be okay. 
mm-hmm. with this type of interspe- interspeciation. Yeah, yeah. I think that's very dangerous. Uh-huh. And not only that, that can be used as a platform to build the argument that, quote unquote, love is love. I don't care if it's between two different species or if it's between two members of the same species and the same sex. It it just struck me how, and any of our listeners that, that, that buy into this, I apologize if it's offensive, but the love is love statement mm-hmm. highlights the, one, limitations of the English language and the ignorance behind the statement. Okay. Because, so? well, the Greeks have, what, five different terms for love, for what we would call love? Gosh, you're going to ask me that quick. I always four or five. Four or five, right. But it expresses different types of love. And it that um differentiation is embedded in the Greek language. So when we're like love is love, what's a Greek gonna say? Well would you know, is is um Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, there there is a severe structural limitation. And like JP Moreland was saying if you want to control the way people think, you control the language, which is the tools to be able to express a given thought. Right. If you reduce the tool set, you reduce the complexity of thought of the mind that's trying to communicate. Right. Because love, I mean, sure, love is love. But when it's such a broad statement, it misrepresents the thing that we're actually discussing. It's also a tautologist statement. It's very circular. Mm-hmm. Like A is A. Begs the question. Pretty much. But we we buy it and we run around and we, we tote it around as a meme. Mm-hmm. And given what we've talked about in prior episodes, the effective power of a meme. Right. It's very destructive and nobody tends to question it. It just becomes the, a catchphrase. And for a society that is being continually taught to think with its emotions, mm-hmm. I feel like this is an okay statement. Yeah. And you, you run around with it and all of a sudden now it's on your Facebook profile. Right, but there are a lot of ways you can easily start to tear down that idea that love is love. Right. Like, no, they're not equal. That's one of the problems I have with an equality-based movement or Mm -hmm. ideology. Right. If everything's equal, then nothing's equal. Right. There has to be distinctive differences. Yeah. Right, so everything can't be equal. Now, if we're talking about the value of a human being, if we're equal in that sense— from what perspective? This is a huge tangent we've taken. It is, yeah. But from what perspective? If we buy into an evolutionary model, then how are we all equal? Right. As far as value. Where do we derive our value from in an evolutionary sense? Now, I could I could make the argument and go along with it. Fine. We're all equal from an evolutionary perspective, right? But then from an evolutionary perspective, they say everything's meaningless because it happened by accident, just by random chance. Right, but so that means we have no inherent meaning. And if we have no inherent meaning, why are we arguing that everyone's equal and this is okay? I, I, I would push back on this long tangent. But if the main mechanism of evolution is survival of the fittest, it refutes any type of um, equality. E- yeah. There's no equality because it's based off of survival of the fittest. And if you are the fittest, then you are above everyone else. It, it, there's there's no room for equality there. So I see problems on both ends. Yeah. You know, I, I see what you 
correctly pointed out. But I was taking the point that if a person's saying we are equal and we believe in evolution, why? Where Where is our inherent meaning coming from? I the only you. way that we can have inherent meaning is if it's bestowed by a creator. And that refutes, by nature, the definition of evolution. Right. It also means if we're, if we're under the, the purview and sovereignty of a creator, mm-hmm. then we must also ask, what is the creator's purpose? What is the creator's opinion? What is the creator's perspective? What is the creator's thoughts about X, Y, and Z? It changes the entire platform. Which means if we come up with an idea like love is love, we got to go back and talk to the creator and be like, is that true? Is, is love love? Right. And see what they say about it. Right, because it's not up to us to decide all of those things. Exactly. That becomes a danger with that. Now, why you took me down this entire <laughs> thought process to piss off at least a third of our audience, I, I don't know. Well, it gets us right to the background of the, the storytelling. Which is the spiritual messaging? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Talking about the importance of appealing to the creator, right? Mm -hmm. Because we we don't get to decide all of these things. It's not lost on me that here in Marvel, we have yet another example of inverting that. So instead of looking to the creator because he sets all things right, they invert him and they make him the villain, the very thing that you either have to escape from or win over on I'm not following from the perspective of the film from the perspective of the film yeah so we talk about they trying to escape from or win over for especially for an audience that has not seen this film Ronan and Thanos okay so Thanos in some ways and with any inversion because it's a distortion of the message you it's it's never a perfect mirror image right so we got to slow down for a minute. We've talked about Thanos twice, and we haven't really introduced him. So you and I know who Thanos is because we've watched these films. Okay. But we haven't actually said who this character is. So so for those who are not familiar with this film, Thanos is a character that's actually operating in the background. He is the catalyst for why all of these events have transpired, the events that the Guardians are having to deal with, with the Power Stone, as well as the events that transpire with Iron Man and Thor and Captain America. Right. uh, Creating the the Avengers and the things that happen in New York under that that whole movie umbrella. So Thanos is basically a a mad titan. He's one of the most powerful beings within the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Mm -hmm. He's also the quote-unquote father of Gamora, and he's also the father of Nebula. Right. Because these are people that he has kidnapped from worlds that he's conquered, and he's trained them in the art of assassination and death deathmongering. Right. So that's who he is. Okay. I just so, want to bring people up to speed. Okay. I think in, in a loose sense, he represents like the father god archetype in this movie. I think so, too. One, because he operates in the background, but two, because he is so powerful. Right. And I think that's the real characteristic that they used to tie him to the God archetype. Okay. I can see that. And then he also keeps calling Ronan boy. And, and it wouldn't be that big of a deal, but he doesn't talk to anyone else like that anywhere else. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So we talk about the genius that's used in the language and more than one time, the God archetype calls Ronan boy. And in this inversion, it distorts their relationship with one another as well. 
Uh, but it shows this, the, the hierarchy. And then there's even a scene where uh, Ronan throws a fit about, you call me boy. So it's interesting that it just, it, I think it, all of these add to developing Thanos as the father god archetype. Yeah, because there's definitely a father-son component to the relationship that Thanos has with Ronan. Right, right. And Ron, that means then that Ronan has to serve as an archetype as well. Right. And this was a little difficult to discern because as, as they point out, Ronan is called the accuser. Yes, I thought that was a great distraction thrown in there. Well, the fact also that he sleeps in the blood of his enemies. Uh-huh. I was like, yeah, this seems very, quote-unquote, satanic. Okay, yeah. Right, so immediately my mind was drawn to, okay, this has to be this Satan archetype. And I okay. remember when you and I talked, we disagreed on this one. Uh-huh. And I thought it was interesting why you disagreed. Because you wouldn't put him down as a Satan archetype. No, I actually have him as divine Jesus archetype. Now, why is that? Because his language is very specific. Um, and 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 the role that he plays. So some of the, some of the specific phrasing could come out of the Bible and the way that he talks about um, justice and and the pursuit of justice and um, the things that he talks about himself. It's it's very Jesus esque. And uh, the for anyone with a biblical background, the fact that they gave him accuser is going to throw you off the scent because Satan is called the accuser of the brethren, right? Mm-hmm. And that it's very Christianese, but it is a title. Um, but in the context of this movie, uh, you know, Ronan judges people's planets, calls them a disease, you know, that he's going to cure. And, uh, well, you don't have to take my word for it. They call me terrorist, radical, zealot, because I obey the ancient laws of my people, the Kree, and punish those who do not, because I do not forgive your people for taking the life of my father, and his father, and his father before him. A thousand years of war between us will not be forgotten. You can't do this! Our government signed a peace treaty! My government knows no shame. You Zandarians and your culture are a disease. You will never rule Zandar. No. I will cure it! You call me boy! I will unfurl 1,000 years of Kree justice on Xandar and burn it to its core! People of Xandar, the time has come to rejoice and renounce your paltry gods! Your salvation is at hand! So there is so much embedded in just that language. Yeah. Right? You call me terrorist, zealot. Like, those are things they actually said about Jesus when he was walking the earth. But because I follow the ancient laws of my people, I mean, the Bible says that Jesus came to fulfill the law. 
And it said the thing that made him perfect was that he didn't break any of the laws that were set down in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. The fact that um, he's he's not going to rule Xandar, he's going to cure it because Jesus came to cure us from sin. <clears throat> the fact that he says he's going to rain down a thousand years of creed justice on Xandar, the, the, uh, depending on what your view is of the end times that Jesus is supposed to come back, sit on David's throne and reign for a thousand years. Like these are all very, very specific. And then that the last clip when he shows up and he's got the power stone and he, he actually sets foot on Xandar and he said, now is the time to rejoice right? Denounce your paltry gods. Salvation is at hand. Now you're caught up in the emotion of it and it's a great scene. None of that makes sense. Everything that he said leading up to that moment is he's going to destroy them because you killed my father and my father before, or his father before him and his father before him, which also sounds like Jesus because every time somebody asked him, you know, what are you doing here? Well, I'm here to do the will of my father. Mm -hmm. So you get that sentiment expressed in Ronan. So all of this about raining down terror and, you know, destroying and sleeping in their blood and, and all of this. And then once he's down there, he actually says, now's the time to rejoice, to denounce your paltry gods. Salvation is at hand. Well, where's all that come from? Yeah. Like I said, when, when you explain your reasoning, I was like, okay, I think I need to change my perspective. Okay. A really compelling argument as to why he better fits the divine Jesus archetype uh, as opposed to the the Satan archetype. And I think it's also important to recognize, you know, we, we talked a moment ago about this hidden hand that directs things. Mm -hmm. I don't always think that the people who sit down and make these films are expressly trying to slot people into these places. Yeah, I don't I don't necessarily think so either. And I think it's a good takeaway because sometimes it's easy to vilify a person mm -hmm. because of a product without realizing that they may have been an inadvertent victim and a tool right. of a larger spiritual war without realizing it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think Chris Pratt might be a good example of that. Because he's come under a lot of fire. He said a lot of things that sound very Christian, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I'm i going to withhold judgment. I don't know the man. Um, I haven't seen a lot of questionable behavior out of him, but he's come under a lot of fire for just being a part of this, you know, being a part of the Marvel franchise because he asks um, in, in, in one of the Endgame movies, like, who was your master? He's like, what am I supposed to say? Jesus. And well, how dare he say that? If he's really a Christian, he would have never said that. And, Eh, I mean, it would be easy getting caught up in this, you know, inversion, you know, mind control, brainwashing. That's all a of that. weird. Yeah, that's kind of a weird metric, I think, to hold. Because if you had a Christian that was playing Satan in a film, mm -hmm. even a Christian film, but his responsibility to is to play Satan, yeah. right? And he says something that's in line with what the character would say. Could you turn right around and be like, I can't believe you would say that as a Christian? Right, it, it's just. I mean, you could, and I know people who would do that. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, eh, okay, that doesn't hold water for me. Right, I'm looking for a little bit more than that. Right, and we talk about the satanic control matrix because what that is is it's where the actual celestial celestial war spills over into our plane. So just like James Gunn said, the hidden hand is what we're really trying to expose. Right, not trying to say James Gunn is a satanist. Well, he could be, but I don't know. 
Not to say everyone in here is, you know, is gleeful about misrepresenting Jesus Christ and Father God and and all of those things. No, this is the this is the working, this is the result of a bunch of things coming together, but when we know that that our whole culture is steeped in Satanism, that our country is dedicated to all pagan gods, that you you can't escape the influence of supernatural entities. Exactly. Uh, and when I didn't know that James Gunn actually helped write this too. Okay. So he did the the treatment prior to doing the screenplay. Gotcha. And as a director. So he's been living with these concepts for a while. Right. Uh, and you see that in the fact, one of the, the things we didn't mention earlier that I found interesting about the film was the fact, and this was tied to soundtrack. Okay. Is the fact that he specifically chose to make the music diegetic. Meaning that the music emits from an actual source within the contextual framework of the film. So we're here every time we hear music, it's coming from a natural source in the film, and it's coming from the perspective of the character that we're watching, and it's being used to communicate their thoughts or something about that character. I love that. I didn't know that. That's one of the things that helped me appreciate the soundtrack, even though I'm not a particular fan of the music. I don't want to go back and watch this again. Uh, you almost want to, though, with, with all of this. Yeah, Because yeah. there's a reason they call it Volume 1, Volume 2, and Volume 3. So Volume 1, this is the mixtape, and it comes from his. It comes from Peter Quill's mother. Okay. Right, this is the collection of songs that she liked. Right. Cause and this she, is what she got when she was with uh, Peter's father. Right? Okay. And so that's kind of her language. And he's picking up on that since she's died. This is why he's so protective of the Walkman and everything else in the film. Okay. All right. Then you move to volume two, which we'll talk about next week. And the music in volume two is directly from Peter's mother to him. Is it the, the mixtape he gets at the end of the first movie? Yes. Okay. And so that's what he's playing. So now he's, what? And he gets a Zune at the end of the second Shut one. Shut up. You're going to ruin it. Sorry, I'm just getting excited. Yes, yeah, so you ruined it with your excitement. <laughs> but yeah, he gets. How's a- it feel? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he gets a zoom at the end of the third one, and it's kind of cool as a device too because there's no the, the tapes are limited is in their their um, the capacity for songs. Mm-hmm. And the zooms got like 300. Right. So we got a much bigger palette to work with. So I wonder if the music in the third one is going to be that much more expansive. I think it will, but it's also going to be coming from Yandu's perspective. Because Yandu was the one who gave where the Zoom came from as a gift. Okay. So you'll hear songs that are going to be talking about how Yandu felt about Peter. Songs about fathers and sons and things like that, which you do get a little bit in the end of the second one. But even in this first one, there, there, there is music that it, it communicates importance. This is part of what I was like, man, there's so much you can miss yeah. in a film. And James Gunn talked about how he does something from a directorial sense that is uh, unconventional. And that is the fact that he writes the music into the script prior to licensing. Really? He's got these songs in his head, songs that he likes. Okay. And he's working them in based on the lyrics to communicate something important contextually. 
And then they have to go back and see if they even get the licensing for the song. Because normally that's not how it's done. Normally in today's world of cinematics, you 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 work with the catalog of music that the studio owns and has legal access to. Okay. Because it doesn't cost you anything. And then if you want something that's outside that catalog, you have to work it into your budget and hope that the other the the music uh, studio will grant you that access, the licensing to use that song. Okay. You get what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So it's but he a does re- it all like I need these songs no yeah, matter period. what. Okay. Which is actually really interesting. And mm-hmm. it's also interesting that these are not just arbitrary songs. We're not just picking this because the hottest artist has got this on the radio and we can get a lot of plays from this. Right. You know, we're picking this because this is an important song. This plays into our plot. There's something being communicated in the background with this. Okay. And I was like, wow, I miss a lot. Yeah, now I'm I'm, I'm going to have to not try to rewatch all the movies in my head with the soundtrack to to get that. You're going back and you're watching volumes <laughs> one and two. <laughs> I meant right now, like I've got a podcast to do. My brain just can't <laughs> check out and do this. No, you can't. You got to stay right here with me and do this. <laughs> oh, that's good stuff, though. So that would be another thing, like because we talk about how to 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 engage your brain and not watch the movies like you typically do. Right. But it's not this weird thing to be done begrudgedly, you know, for religious aspects or just to, it's not only to guard yourself, but it's, it's fun. There is a lot of stuff. It enriches the whole experience to engage your brain with it, you know, because you have all this extra stuff. Exactly. Like I didn't realize that the power stone Mm -hmm. probably should have saved this for the prior section too. We're going to get better at this. I hope so. Uh, But the power stone, was actually a core aspect of the plot of this film. Most of the people's problems in this film come from power issues. Okay. The whole might makes right thing? Yeah. Okay. But it's built off of the power stone because it's such an integral aspect of this plot. Everybody's got power issues. Interesting. A very similar technique shows up in volume two. Okay. You have to wait till next week. (laughs) <laughs> uh, one other thing about Ronan, though, his his throne even looks like a cross. Now, I'll grant you, I could be uh, just influenced a little bit by the fact that all the other stuff that he says, but because the arms on the cross are way longer. Like, I, do you see the yeah. screen grab I got? Yep. So the arms are way longer than it is. Like, it doesn't stand tall off of his throne. But it does have a a cross esque look to it, which I don't think was accidental. If he's supposed to be representing, you know, the divine Christ. Exactly. Exactly. I, it's it's a little bit more stylized, right? For okay. sure. It, it doesn't fit like a traditional cross, but you can see from a stylistic perspective how this is is a uh, caricature of a cross. Right. Right. For sure. So if if Ronan is the divine Christ archetype, then we got to go see. Okay, well the protagonist is is Quill, and I think he represents the replacement Christ or the um, the Antichrist, as he's more widely known. The Antichrist and all his glory. And I think Peter's mom would probably agree with you. They are so like your daddy. 
And you even look like him. And he was an angel. Composed out of pure light. He was an angel composed out of pure light. Quill's dad. Yeah. So. Which again makes him a hybrid. Right. And it's, it's interesting. I think it shows one ability that they have. Like when we talk about this Gnostic inversion, it's not typically that ideology expressed across multiple movies. And this is an excellent example of that. Because not to get too much into to next week's, but we're going to do Guardians 2, and we find out that Ego is actually a celestial or a god. Here, it was very specifically chosen that she says, your daddy was an angel. And we know that the Antichrist is going to be the seed of Satan, which is a fallen angel. So you have these little details. So in- Oh, take you one better. He wasn't just an angel, but an angel composed of pure light. Yeah. And scripture says that even Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Yes. So it's kind of interesting the emphasis being placed on there. And the 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 fact that even in Genesis, you know, it the the salvation plan or whatever, that the seed of the serpent would be at war with the seed of the woman. Mm-hmm. So so we know that Satan is gonna have seed. And then it's found here in Peter Quill. And his his name is is interesting to me. All right, now I was waiting for the second our, our second episode to talk about Peter's name. Oh, were you? I was, but you No, you, no, no. We can we can we can save that for next We can say that one. He's so mad. Right? Cuz what is this the third thing we're like so next week we're hey, really going to hey, get into. He just got come it. back. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's, that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. So we have Peter, he looks like the, you know, fulfills the the antichrist archetype. But Beyond that, his his character is really flawed. Like we like the character, or I do anyway. You know, from from a um, an audience perspective. Mm-hmm. But he's has some weird character flaws that are kind of subtle, and they they don't seem like bad things. So he's a liar. He's a thief. He's he's a sexual deviant. Because in the the first scene, yeah, he does yeah. all that, and then you find a chick in his. In his uh, spaceship. They got a little chicky dude that he done forgot about. Yeah, he doesn't, can't remember her name. Yeah. And she's like, what happened? And he literally, he's literally like, oh, I, I got to be honest, I forgot you were even there. Not only that, as soon as he's, as soon, while he's talking to her, he's he goes up to a screen and he's kind of thumbing through on the screen, swiping through. Uh-huh. And if you zoom in and look, it's like different pictures of other women. It's almost like a galactic Tinder book. Really? Right while he's talking to her. He's just swiping through other ones. Interesting. I didn't catch that. Yeah, well, you know, it's Star-Lord. It's hard being Star-Lord. <laughs> yeah, th- well, even it, his his name's Star-Lord. Or do you, did you want to save that for the next one? No, go ahead. Okay, well, the fact that uh, in, in in the Bible, stars are used as an idiom for, for angels. Yeah. So the fact that he's Star-Lord would be that he's Lord of the angels right exactly exactly and given the fact that lucifer in his prior to his fallen state Mm -hmm. was considered the anointed cherubim or the anointed cherub and that would indicate that he was the highest ranking angel in heaven okay all right so Mm -hmm. he falls 
Right. He still maintains a fair degree of authority and responsibility. So much so that we do see when when Michael contends with Satan over the body of Moses, Michael doesn't even bring an accusation of his own accord against Lucifer or okay. against Satan because he because of the rank difference. Okay. Instead, Michael relies on the on the pronouncement of 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 uh of Jesus Christ against Lucifer when he says the Lord rebukes you. So it was on the Lord's authority that I'm showing up here. Interesting. Not on my own. Cause even in a fallen state, they hold those particular positions. He still commands a fair degree of, of authority Interesting. and respect, so to speak. If that's the case, you fast forward to revelation and revelation says that the I'm going off of memory here. So anybody else is out there right now, looking at the Bible, <laughs> um, you can correct me, but I believe that the dragon gives his authority and power to the beast. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. So if the beast in Revelation is the replacement Christ, uh-huh. which would be the Antichrist, and we're saying here, metaphorically, that Peter represents the Antichrist, right? Okay. Then he would be given the power of the beast or the power of Satan. If Satan was the highest ranking angel, he was Lord over the angels. Right. Okay. So him being given that power and being called star Lord doesn't seem that far off. No, it doesn't. Seems to track almost perfect. Yeah. That's crazy. That's not, can't be accidental. That's not even in the notes, dude. No, that was good. That was good. I like that one. What is in the notes though, is this amazing picture. (laughs) (laughs) I despise you sometimes. <laughs> like you literally wait till I take a drink. And that drink almost got spewed everywhere. So, it almost looked like a Jackson Pollock picture. <laughs> almost. Right. But yeah, so like again, just to highlight, and it, it goes a little bit under the radar, but just to highlight his sexual deviancy. Gamora uh references that his his ship is filthy, right? Mm-hmm. And he's like, Oh, she has no idea. If I had a black light, this place would look like a Jackson Pollock painting. And Quill, your ship is filthy. Oh, she has no idea. If I had a black light, the place would look like a Jackson Pollock painting. You got issues, Quill. I had never seen a Jackson Pollock painting. Me either. But I could understand the, the frame of reference. Uh-huh. I was like, this is going to be nasty. For, for your viewing pleasure and for anyone on Patreon, there is an image in the sh- studio notes, and it's got just splashes of oh. white oh. and red and yellow. <laughs> it's just streaked everywhere. It's almost like somebody took a paint bucket and just went... Several times. Right? Like, I, 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 I really... <laughs> there's a sound I hear in my head from Dave Chappelle. <laughs> It goes a little bit like, ski, 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 ski. <laughs> That's what it looked like. Now, I tell you what bo- what's bothersome to me, though. Okay. Besides this painting that you put in the notes. <laughs> what's bothersome to me is the fact that Marvel likes to slip in some fairly sexually demented commentary in their films. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is one example. But there's an example where Tony Stark makes a, a statement. And I want to say it's Avengers Age of Ultron. Okay. Where they're they're at the bar, 
they're all having this contest to see who can pick up Thor's hammer. For those who are twisted, that's not the sexual double on top. <laughs> all right. <laughs> right. I saw where that was going. I can't unsee where. Now, <laughs> you gotta have that in your mind every time you hear that, right? I need a new best friend. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, but as they're having this contest, and the thing with that that hammer is that it has a, I don't know if it would be a spell or an incantation that was placed on it by Odin that basically said, whoever is is worthy of this hammer can actually wield it. Mm-hmm. And so nobody else seems to be able to, to wield it except Thor. Right. However, uh, Captain America seems to move it a little bit. Right. And the look on, just as, a side, as an aside, the look on Chris Hemsworth's face. Oh, priceless. I don't know how you act that. Like, it's a small expression that he gives that is of sheer paranoia. Uh-huh. And it's so controlled that I'm like, how did you express that? Like, I really, if I could talk to him and interview him, I'm like, take me to that scene. How, what acting-wise went through your head of, uh-oh. Right. Because right. it's not a full uh-oh. It's like, oh, hell no. Right. But you can't show everyone that you're nervous. Exactly. It's a combination of emotions where, like, I tried practicing that look Have just you? to see if I could pull it off. Give me one right now. Can't do it. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. I can't pull it off. Like, uh uh-uh. <laughs> Like, mine's more like, uh <laughs> It's not. <laughs> Nobody else that got to see like, that look. That, that was like, what's a fly doing in here? That. <laughs> That's the look that I got. <laughs> that was, uh, oh, oh, I'm still in control. Oh, that's amazing. But during this whole scene, Iron Man tries to lift the hammer. And as he's walking up and grabs it, he says, if I can move this, I become the ruler of Asgard, right? And they're like, oh, yeah, that's pretty much what happens. You know, you carry the Thor title. And he goes, my first action of as ruler is I'm going to reestablish the ancient practice of prima noctura okay never one to shrink from an honest challenge Get after it. it's physics all right so I, if i lift it i i then rule asgard yes of course i will be reinstituting prima nocta <clears throat> be right back i was like what the hell is prima noctura I think I had to ask you what it was. Yeah, that's where uh, on in the the king's kingdom, he uh, reserves the right to deflower virgins on their wedding night. Which is that is a crazy statement to just flippantly say, right? It, it's it coming just, from Disney. Mm-hmm. Like you, you, do you understand how wild of a statement that is? Yeah. And they play it off as just this kind of underhand joke or whatever. Exactly. They have some really wild ways of communicating sexual deviancy. They do. And joking about it. That's really disturbing. Well, that's that's one way to... I mean, that, that that's a backdoor into... No pun intended. <laughs> pun intended. <laughs> Why did your voice get deeper? Oh, I'm so nervous. <laughs> But no, that's one way to, to to sidestep beyond just the technology, the TVs, to to sidestep the prefrontal cortex into talking about taboo topics is to is to make it funny. 
So you hide it behind a joke or whatever. That's why you see some of these kind of offhand comedies, Shrek, things like that. It's funny and it's goofy. And then there's all these sexual innuendos because you're not intellectually picking up on them. They're funny and you let your guard down. So now it's safe to talk about these things. Yeah, you've constantly cautioned me as a fellow Christian brother against my tendency to misuse humor. Yes. Don't in that do, fashion. It's dangerous. But it's so much fun. It's, it's so easy. It's, it's all, right there. It's all fun and games till somebody loses an eye. Yeah, it's fun and it, games till somebody's pregnant. Right. That's, that is exactly it. That is exactly it. There was this uh, TikTok that said, you know, funny guys are the most dangerous ladies. Because it's ha-ha jokes and poof, you're naked. This is a warning to all my ladies. Be very cautious around funny men. Funny guys are dangerous, okay? Because they make you laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh. Then boom, you're naked. Yep. <laughs> I was like, is that how it works? I'm about a half joke away. I gotta, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta uh, perfect my technique. Oh, uh, that's funny. So if Peter Quill is the, the Antichrist or the replacement Christ archetype, mm-hmm. I think it's interesting how his how the plot unfolds because the people or the the agendas that he has to team up with in order to win against the tyranny of Christ is interesting. So if Peter Quill really is the Antichrist or the mm-hmm. replacement Christ archetype, it's interesting to see who he teams up with because if we're representing all these ideas and these 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 archetypes properly, the people that he team up with represent the agendas that we see in the world today moving us to a one world order. I think this is going to be really interesting because I'm, I'm not sure if I saw the exact same things you saw, mm-hmm. but I did see that in certain respects, each of these people seems to represent a certain type of agenda. And not just that, as Dr. Laura Sangers pointed out, more more acutely, they represent various aspects of the Nephilim agenda. Yes. Which is the agenda to corrupt humanity. Okay, yeah. I think that's how she defines it. Yeah, and for anyone that missed it, there's even a small segment of the movie where they just they go back to back and, and explain the, the details of, of the characters. Gamora. Surgically modified and trained as a living weapon. The adopted daughter of the mad titan Thanos. Recently, Thanos lent her and her sister Nebula out to Ronin, which leads us to believe that Thanos and Ronin are working together. Subject 89P13 calls itself Rocket, the result of illegal genetic and cybernetic experiments on a lower life form. What the hell? They call it Groot, a humanoid plant that's been traveling recently as 89P13's personal houseplant slash muscle. Peter Jason Quill from Terra, raised from youth by a band of mercenaries called the Ravagers, led by Yandu Udanta. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't know how this machine worked. What a bunch of a-holes. <laughs> I can see the whole scene in my mind's eye. Yep, I can't Especially too. when he's like, I didn't know how this machine works, and he's slowly flicking off the camera. Uh-huh. Uh, that's funny. Yeah, but we have, so Gamora, she represents allopathic medicine and transhumanism because okay. she's surgically modified. So allopathic med- medicine is all drugs and surgery. Mm, okay. And that leads into transhumanism. And we know that it's a global agenda because the Rockefellers purchased the AMA in 19... 19- 
1910, something like that. And they've... <laughs> it's only a decade difference. Well, it's a 1 and a O. I, I know. <laughs> I mean, I'm just giving you crap, but I forget <laughs> stuff all the time. So, yeah, it's the 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 overtaking of health care has now become crisis care through allopathic medicine. Okay. And it's clearly a global agenda for anyone that's been around during the pandemic the last couple of years. Right. Global agenda for sure. Right. Rocket represents generic hybridization. Again, transhumanism. What did I say? Generic. Did I say generic? Yes. He's a lower life form. He's a trash panda. It's... <laughs> It's genetic hybridization. Genetic hybridization. My bad. And, and, and that is part of, uh, like you were saying, the Nephilim agenda to corrupt humanity. And what, what does the World Economic Forum say? To, to redefine what it means to be human? Right. All that is through genetic experimentation. And the, the, it's interesting that they highlighted the fact that it's illegal experimentation that makes rocket. Yeah. Uh, there's a book I'm reading right now called uh, The Green Gospel. Is that the title of it? Isn't that it? I thought it was The Green Gospel. Oh, no, it is. But I not- know I call it <laughs> something else. Yeah. I'm reading The Green Book. Every time it's something different, I'm like, what is he talking about? <laughs> okay, that's... <laughs> yeah, the, the Green Gospel by Sheila Zelensky. One of the things she highlights is the fact that eugenics is a major part of the agenda of, of the social elites. You start calling them like social pariahs, but yeah. uh, of these people that are, are trying to control society. And one of the things that they were able to do was to take eugenics, which is the process of, of calling a herd or, or reducing a herd based on non-desirable traits, essentially killing off people. One of the things that they were able to do with that is to modify it into genetics. Okay. So when I see genetic hybridization or genetic manipulation, Mm -hmm. I'm already thinking eugenics. Right. Which is reducing ultimately the population, right? Which is going to be in line with uh, the the stated goals of these social pariahs that are like recorded in what we had with the, uh, what do they call that? The Georgia Guidestones. Mm -hmm. You know, reducing the population of the world is a critical component of that. And genetic hybridization is a major agenda. Yes, and it and it's being it's being guided under the auspices of transhumanism. Mm-hmm. Dead on. But speaking of the the green movement or the green gospel, I think that's who Groot represents in this movie. They ally with him, and he's very much a a protection, like he's a powerhouse in Guardians One, mm-hmm. and even like. Uh, spoilers if we haven't already done that but he gives his life to protect the the guardians right or he sacrifices himself then i mean what do they keep telling us that if we keep going on doing what we're doing we're going to end up killing mother gaia i was like that's interesting that that's the one that gets quote unquote sacrificed interested i didn't catch that yeah so i mean he comes back so there's still hope if we change what we're doing now we can save groot that's what i'm going to start saying instead of save the planet Save, save Groot. Save Groot. Someone's going to be like, is he got gout? What did, what did he say? <laughs> and then uh, uh, the last one is Drax, hyper-emotionalism. Okay, now that one I didn't I didn't catch okay. at all. So explain that one. So as a, as a global agenda, we see trans, 
there's so many transes right now. Um, transgenderism is purely based off of how you feel. Self-identification is purely what you feel about yourself. You know, uh, even political correctness is you can't say things that negatively affect the way that a person feels. There's all this non-factual, non-scientific, emotionally driven rhetoric that is is um, deeply penetrating all aspects of our culture. Drax, as much as he's a represented as a manly man, right? Like he's just ripped head to toe. He's all about war. Except for the fact that he has sensitive nipples. Well, except for... But that doesn't show up until the second one. <laughs> we don't know that right. in this film yet. Uh, but he is purely an emotional being. He cannot be reasoned with intellectually. Um, even the don't kill Gamora appeals to his emotions. You know, we can work together appeals to his emotions. Like, he just purely functions off of his emotions. Interesting. Yeah. I haven't seen his character that way. So it's interesting to hear you, you reveal that. Do you think I, do you think it's accurate? I do. Okay. No, you put it that way. I I can see it. I can buy it. I didn't necessarily look at him as a look at his character as being emotional. Mhm. Um especially when they set it up with the fact that they're just very literal. Right. I wouldn't equate literal with emotional. Okay. Yeah, that's true. He is literal, but he's also very lacking intellectually, right? Mm. And it's easier to see. We always talk about when emotions increase, intelligence decreases. Mm-hmm. That's Drax. I got you. So even so, like he calls Ronan and his whole army. Yeah, 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 yeah. And no one knows they're coming. Just know? so he can have his revenge so he can get his rage out. Right. And it, it almost kills the entire team. Right, right. Yeah, completely emotionally driven. Interesting. So, yeah, the Antichrist has to team up with or utilize these particular agendas in order to get a one-world government, in order to bring about their satanic agenda to fight the war against the divine Christ, the Jesus, the true Jesus of the Bible. That is fascinating. That's a fascinating insight. I'm telling you, dude, I didn't catch that, and I'm over here tripping. All right, all right, that's cool. That is dope. Thank you, thank you. And then, like, all tied up in the fact that, like we said about the trailer, you know, they lie, they steal, they cheat, sexually immoral, kill people. These, from an audience perspective, these are the people that we want to be like. Well, these are the ones that are called heroes. Right. And we talked about the fallacy of the hero the hero uh, idea. Yes. In a prior episode. You know, this notion that we see heroes and we see the the concept of a hero constantly purported in society as being the creme de la creme, like this is what you aspire to be. But if you vet that against a biblical take on what a hero is, a hero from a biblical perspective is actually a Nephilim, right? It is the hybrid being that resulted from angels having sexual contact and intercourse with human women Mm -hmm. and producing an illicit life form that life form being granted some of the supernatural strength of their fathers while being given human bodies that they could interact with in our dimension. And they were able to wreak havoc. The Bible says these were the heroes of old. Right. Right. It's the first time we even see the word in scripture. Mm -hmm. So the concept of a hero is not necessarily someone who's brave or someone who is courageous. 
the real concept of a hero is someone that is satanically minded. Right. So we it would make catch sense that though. Right. We don't. So it makes sense that these are the heroes. Exactly. But not under the auspice that it's being portrayed. Right. Not as though these are our character traits that we should be wanting to emulate. Mm-hmm. And and another way of looking at it, just thinking about it now, like because it seems somewhat harmless as an adult, because we we know these things, right? We have a prior framework that we're dealing with. Surely mm-hmm. it's not right to kill people. But if you imagine that you're letting your children or having children watch the movie and they dress up like Quinn, right? Peter or mm-hmm. Quill, Peter Quill. So how much of his character are they adopting to pretend to be like him? Is he starting to paint his room like like a Jackson Pollock painting? God, I hope not. You know what I mean? Like if you're if 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 your daughter dresses up and plays Gamora, does she you know she wants to be awesome? She wants to be the warrior. I get it, but then do you also adopt? I want to kill my parents. Yeah, because she's got that component, right? Or I'll kill my sibling. Yeah, yeah. If you if you want to play Drax, do you have to <laughs> disengage your brain and and only be able to communicate via emotional needs and wants? Right. Like these things, as we talk about the technology of the TV, embeds these layers over and over and over and and creates normative ideas that when we see the world and it looks like Guardians of the Galaxy, it doesn't shock us and we don't think that it needs to change because this is the new normal. And this is why we're constantly pushing this this idea of the satanic control matrix Mm -hmm. because it's utilizing various aspects of this matrix to exert control over the individual via thought manipulation, right? There's a reason that these types of ideas, which are coming from sector three are showing up in sector two. Right. And it's not accidental that they're utilizing technology that bypasses our prefrontal cortex in order to get into our, our brain and rewire neurologically change the, the networking of our brain. So that we, like we said in this, uh, the opening of the episode, you think less like Christ, you think more like Satan, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that probably sees a, seems maybe a bit Christianese, but if you notice in scripture, there's a constant mandate to take on the mind of Christ, begin to think like he thinks. That means then that it's possible for humanity to think contrary to Christ. Right. It's also possible for us to take on the mindset of other beings, other entities, Right. If we can take on the mindset of Jesus Christ, we can also take on the mindset of those entities that are hostile to Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Essentially, what sector three and sector two teach you and even sector one, they teach you to adopt the mindset of Satan, to think, to look at the world the way he does. Uh huh. That's why you see even in films, given their immense capacity as Edward Bernays stated their immense capacity to change public thought and public behavior to control the masses. This Mm -hmm. is why we see these themes showing up over and over and over again. Yeah. If it was a one-off, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. Exactly. But we're going through these various Marvel films to show this is an orchestrated agenda. Mm -hmm. And remember, it only takes two parties to come into agreement to do something illicit for it to be considered a conspiracy. Yeah. These are multiple, multiple films, multiple parties coming into league yeah. in order to bring this about. And how much did you say this movie made? Like over $700 million? $773 million. Yeah. 
That's a lot of money that people. It's only three point three three, right? Times what it costs. Yeah, there's no way that's an accident. Nah, I think those are fingerprints, personally. Oh, I but did too. Not everybody agrees with that takeaway. Right. But yeah, it cost two hundred thirty-two million, and they made two hundred seventy-three. Okay. Like that thing cost a quarter of a billion dollars, and they made three quarters of a billion. That's nuts. So even if you take away what it costs, they made a cool half billion profit. Right. From people going out of their own volition to sit in front of this rhetoric. And to get indoctrinated with it. Yeah. It's crazy. This stuff works. It it really begins to change the way society functions because it changes the way an individual functions. Right. Right. And it, it's carrying with it all of these subconscious level ideas. Mm-hmm. Like one of the ones we haven't touched on is this concept of the Nova Corp. And I don't, the Nova Corp. Uh-huh. And I don't believe we mentioned them earlier in the synopsis. No, we didn't. I don't think they haven't come up at all. Yeah. We got, we got him here in the notes and the Nova Corps, we talked about Ronan and Ronan was this, uh, how do you want to call it? I don't want to call, I want to call him an Avenger. He was a warlord. And he is, he was trying to take over uh, the Zandarians, right? Mm-hmm. And they were on a planet in a society hosted by the Nova Corps. Right. It's interesting if you take apart constructually the name of Nova Corps. Mm-hmm. Nova means new and Corp means body. Yes. Right? So uh-huh. this is essentially the new body if you put those together. Uh-huh. It's interesting that that has a biblical framework or context for it as well. Right. That'd be the church, right? Exactly. Yeah. That's- so if the Nova Corps represents the church. It's interesting what characteristics the Nova Corps seems to, to carry with it in the film. Mm-hmm. They're judgmental. They're helpless. They come across a bit goofy. They're definitely self-righteous. And interestingly enough, they're led by a woman named Nova Prime. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because the church is referenced as the bride of Christ. Exactly. In the Bible. Exactly. And then to add insult to injury, when they have the power stone within their possession, they don't even use it. No, they just hide it away. What does that sound like? The Western church. Doing what? <laughs> Nothing. Right. They have the power of the word of God, but they don't do anything with it. Right. And it's interesting, too, that there's a scene where Nova Prime is talking with the other leaders of the the Kree Empire, and they don't like what Ronan is doing because they have this treaty, right? This contract with the Kree. So we enter into a covenant. The New Testament is about a new covenant that the church is supposed to have with Jesus Christ. And in this, the inversion of it is the divine Christ architect archetype violating that covenant with the people and coming down to just um, pass judgment and destroy them. I think it's interesting because you've talked a lot about how the the challenge of of being a Christian and not just in the world today, but just trusting a being that requires any amount of faith, which I mean, any relationship is like that. But a lot of times when we enter hardships, we default into, 
you know, God, do you really care? Are you really looking out for us? You know, mm-hmm. do you do you care that I'm struggling? Do you care that I'm having trouble paying rent or or anything like that? And you've brought up the fact that it's really interesting that we have no problem as a Western church going, yeah, Jesus, I trust you with all of eternity, but I don't know if I can trust you with this smaller thing over here. And it's crazy to me that it seems like this movie, if our archetypes are correct, attacks the idea that you can't even trust him with your eternity because you have this Novacore, the new body, which is represented as the head of a woman, the bride of Christ, contractually engaged with this entity for safety, and he completely disregards it. Yeah, that's a lot. It is a lot. I'm processing it through that scene, but yeah, that's a lot. Mm -hmm. That's a lot that's being stated. And it's interesting even that when... Nova Prime actually says that, hey, Ronan is killing women and children. The people that they have the contractual agreement with are like, that's your problem. Right. It's not It's not our, our issue. Mm-hmm. Even though Ronan actually comes from that, that culture and that society. Right. It, it, was, it was also interesting to me in, in line with that. Dr. Laura Sanger was talking about um, one of the, there's four characteristics of what does she call it? Iniquity in a land. Okay. Um, when when they go into a place and they do spiritual mapping, trying to get an actual read on what is going on mm-hmm. uh, in that place, one of the, w- the those four things that show that there's been iniquity there would be bloodshed, idolatry, sexual deviance, and broken covenant. Interesting. Very fascinating to me that here you have an example of broken covenant, mm-hmm. right? And why, why is all that important? Lines of iniquity. Well, they start to, they lay the groundwork for Nephilim agendas to be seated in a land. And we already talked about how this shows a particular aspect of the Nephilim agenda with transhumanism, but it's also echoed in this broken covenant issue. Interesting. Almost like it seems to run on spiritual laws and principles. Right. But again, getting back to the director, James Gunn, he said there's an, it's almost like there's this invisible hand that takes over. I would argue that that invisible hand that takes over understands spiritual laws. Oh, for sure. And probably helps to create a, by a product that reflects the reality of those spiritual laws. Even if it's shielded from the conscious awareness of the viewer. Mm-hmm. It still doesn't mean that it's not getting into their subconscious and therefore programming their inner realm. Yeah. And we function off of the programming that we have. We do. That's what's really important. That's why you have to work so hard to guard against these various ideas and guard against what you even put yourself in front of. Yeah. Because they have ties to, I mean, the very things, they seem just like hidden embedded ideas and maybe detrimental ones, but they go hand in hand with the people that are actually orchestrating world events. Because like we were saying, you can see the, um, the, the global agenda is represented in the, the Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. But I, I find it also interesting that the church's response to being betrayed by the one that they were in covenant with is to ally with the Antichrist and 
the ravagers. It takes all three branches, right? So if you look at Albert Pike's um, Third World War, they talk about using the Christians and the atheist and 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 putting them together to to form the final cataclysm, right? The final social cataclysm. Yeah, yeah. This this isn't accidental. Is it seems like the church has been left by themselves for because of poor theology. The church is transitioning into progressive Christianity, which is literally adopting the ideologies of um, homosexuality and allopathic medicine and the green movement. All of these are getting merged with the church. That you can see that happen today. And if the archetypes are right for this movie, Novacore, the church is banding together with all of these agendas to literally wage war against the Christ archetype. This is important because if not actively rejected, every single message taken in while sitting in front of the TV screen will leave a film over your eyes. It's a slow fade. I don't think that you'll really notice it at first, but surely these ideologies begin to manifest themselves in your life. Sometimes as your own ideas, things that maybe just resonate with you. You know, I like the way that that feels or that that just seems right to me. It's because you're being manipulated. These ideas are being planted. And if something's planted, it grows into something. You have to actively weed it out. That is a good point. Because if you don't weed it out, you end up believing this false reality overlay. You know, we've talked, mentioned that before in some episodes. We love movies. But we love people even more. That's why we take the time to do this. You know, yes, movies are cool, but we really want to help people more than we just want to, to talk about and, and engage with movies. And, and if we don't connect these dots and, and we don't let people know that it's really our care for them is why we're sitting here talking, all people are really going to end up hearing is this. And that is not the sound you want to hear. You don't want to be sitting down talking to a person and inside their head is that little tune going off, right? You can see it. Have you ever seen it happen? I have. I don't like admitting that, but yes, <laughs> their eyes glass over. Yeah, and yeah. I've not put the two together before, but that's exactly what your voice turns into. <laughs> their face changes and they just they look past you and not at you, you anymore. Know, I'm a little more offended now. <laughs> I'm like, so that's what you've been hearing in your head as I'm talking? I'm yeah. going to be like, stop it. I know what you're hearing right now. <laughs> <laughs> they be like, la, la, huh? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what you mean. Oh, man, that's funny. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, it's so important, though, to be able to, to provide meaning in this type of, of environment, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, too often, I think the church gets accused of just being a, a body that constantly promotes do's and don'ts very legalistically minded organization. Mm -hmm. And I can see that from the outside, why it's perceived that way. But I think it's due to the fact, not that do's and don'ts are wrong, but probably due to the fact more that those do's and don'ts are not placed in the proper contextual framework, right? They're, they're not placed with a, a good reason as to why this matters. That's a good point. And I think that it's the why that is most important. And you don't get to that place unless you ask questions. 
In fact, I've noticed that the propensity to not ask a question is probably the greatest leading cause for how the satanic control matrix can operate without detection. That's interesting. Because they don't want to be questioned. Mm -hmm. Raise a question, raise a good question, and you'll find very quickly they dodge. They move. You know, there's some sort of parry. Or you're not allowed to ask the question in the first place. Mm -hmm. Kind of saw what happened when we were talking about Skull and Bones and the presidential candidates were asked a question about that. Uh huh. And there was an immediate parry. Ain't nothing to talk about here. I don't know why you're bringing it up. Right. Tell right? you what is true, though, is this other thing. And they take complete control of the narrative. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we see happening a lot. Training the mind to ask questions is imperative for mitigating deception okay. asking the right questions that's why we do that so much on this film i mm. mean on the on this show on this film yeah. one one day we'll get there then they can see the faces that you're making no i don't they don't need to see that <laughs> that, that is for a privileged few um but it, it's the reason that we ask the questions that we do and, and the question that we've been asking this week is does this this not just Gardens of the Galaxy Volume 1, but does this film franchise actually teach something much deeper than just comedy? Does it provide something much deeper than just comic relief, right? Does it teach things like rebellion or the glorification of criminality, the inversion of right and wrong, or the blending of right and wrong? I believe one of the, in, in this trailer, there is something where he said, you know, we're going to do something good, something bad, maybe a little of both. Uh-huh. Right? Well, that's even how the movie ends. What are we going to do now? Exactly. Something good, something bad, or a little bit of both. And I think it finishes, he goes, a little bit of both it is, and they take off. But they don't, they, they never make that seem like it's wrong. Right. In fact, the idea in the trailer it talks about being a, a, a misfit, not misfits, but a group of outlaws. Mm -hmm. And then the fact that we couldn't allow this evil to exist. I was like, what are the outlaws? <laughs> like, what evil are you going against? Like, that's how is the outlaw part okay? But that thing over there, that's real evil, and we got to stand against that. Yeah, how do, you, how do you separate evil and outlaw? Exactly. I didn't catch that. But even when we get to something good, something bad, it's almost like this, this occult idea of balance, yin and yang. Mm -hmm. You know, this is necessary for us to navigate life. We need a little something good, need a little something bad. Yeah. Sorry, I don't know. I, the whole idea of, of that, that balance, that yin and yang, mm -hmm. I think the, the middle class understanding or the, the lay understanding of that is a, is a little bit distorted. It's that the good behave, their good actions have to equate to their, their bad ones. So you should be leery of anyone that's elite or an occultist that is practicing lots of good things. Because if they've adopted this duality ideal that has to be balanced, then all of the good things that you see in the public sphere are being balanced out by just as many evil things that you aren't preview to. Exactly. That's why they use philanthropy yes. so much. Mm -hmm. it, it acts as a cover. 
Yeah. And it literally lost people to sleep to sleep. It gets people to think that they're not really in as bad of an environment and as dangerous as an environment as they actually are. Instead of thinking that you're on the back hills of Baghdad, you think that you're in the plains of Kansas. And the reality is you are not in Kansas anymore. You are on Pandora, ladies and gentlemen. Respect that fact every second of every day. Out there beyond that fence, every living thing that crawls, flies, or squats in the mud wants to kill you and eat your eyes for jujubes. If you wish to survive, you need to cultivate a strong mental attitude. You've got to obey the rules. The rules of engagement. And number one is to educate yourself. That's always the primary rule. Always. And it's interesting how often that's the thing under attack. Mm-hmm. Right? Either either don't learn from this source, but do learn from this over here. And while you're learning from this over here, I'm not even going to call it learning. You're just being entertained. Yeah. This is a school. I'm not teaching you anything. It's entertainment. Right? Mm-hmm. What do you mean you're learning something? This is what you get a break from learning. Learning happens in school. <laughs> Interesting. Now you're learning all the time. All the time. The enemy knows that we're learning all the time. The and enemy you, plays to it. Right. And if you don't think that you're learning, then your guard's down for the lessons that you're learning. If you don't exactly, if you don't think that you're learning, then you've already learned the wrong thing. Ooh. Is that another t shirt? Yeah, we, we might need to make that one. I like that. I don't know what type of graphic we come up with it. A brain. <laughs> That's for the second Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> oh, my bad, my bad. That's funny. But no, one of the ways to educate yourself is to know war doctrine, know your Bible. It amazes me a lot of people that even believe that it's true can't navigate it very well and apply it to different aspects of their life. Mm -hmm. And that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. I mean, Chuck Missler said that, what is that old saying? Uh, A jack of all trades and master of none. Yeah. That it's originally was supposed to be a jack of all trades and a master of one. That, That a truly accomplished individual would be good at a bunch of little things, but a master of one thing. And as Christians, we've got to be a master of the Bible. Exactly. I I love that. And sometimes, look, I I, I sympathize with people. Um, Sometimes that's difficult, right? There's a lot of different things that we can come into contact with that distort our relationship with Scripture. And for some of us, it's not... It's not always as easy as it is for others. True. There are people I know, they just love reading the Bible. Mm-hmm. Love it. Can't get enough. If you put it in front of them right now, they are diving head first into it. <laughs> right? I and mean, there's other people probably a little more akin to me where they do it, but it's it's a harder walk. Yeah. Right? It's probably more of an intellectual exercise than it is just a a volitional one or an emotional one. Mm -hmm. And that can make it hard to develop that huge love where I just can't wait to get into this. It can make it difficult to develop the type of relationship with Scripture where you're like, okay, daily, habitually, I'm in this thing. Mm -hmm. For me, what normally drives me back to it is (laughs) getting into conversations where I don't have an answer. I'm like, see, see, now that daggone scripture would have been a better answer. So now I wish I'd have read the Bible more. Right. 
right? It's a weird relationship <laughs> that I have with it. But the reality is scripture is really where we need to go. Educating ourselves in scripture is paramount mm-hmm. because that's the number one thing that's under attack. Right. Right. First, it's taken out of our schools. It's taken out of our media content. It's taken out of our government. I, I was looking at State of the Union the other night, and I just found it very ironically funny that on top of where the vice president and the what is it, speaker of the house, I believe. Okay. And they sit just behind the president. Mm-hmm. Right above them is an inscription that says, in God we trust. Interesting. Right. So the, there was a camera view was pulled back. I saw the vice president, saw speaker of the house, saw the president on the floor and God we trust. I was like, that's still there. Which God? Mm-hmm. Now, I'm really curious because I know the I know some of the views of people in that room. I know some of the views of a Biden. I know some of the views of, uh, you know, a Kamala Harris. Uh huh. I know some of the things that you can ascertain about their views based on not just their political positions, but the things that they actually advocate for mm-hmm. and comparing that against scriptural doctrine. And I'm like, as a country, not even trying to zero in on those two people, as a country, who do we serve? Who do we trust? Do we, I mean, it says in God we trust. It's a very vague term. But do we still trust even in that God? Or is it something else? We, that we've done, our, 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 our culture has been done such a great disservice by having the God of scriptures excommunicated from culture. Like we will, willingly booted him out. Mm-hmm. And now we're suffering the consequences. Right. And one of those consequences is that as he's gone away, his word has to go away too, right? It's becoming more and more a crime to reference scripture. Yeah. Now scripture is considered hate speech. Yeah. Why am I saying all of this? Because I'm trying to, to put a, a spotlight on the fact that scripture is under attack. The enemy recognizes the power of that particular tool that we've been given, that particular weapon, and is trying to extricate it from our, our from us having any access to it. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And if that's the case, it's that if it's that serious that he's focusing on it, it must also be that serious for us to get into it. True. But we don't really look at it that way. Right uh-uh. now, it's optional. Right. And it's a boring book in a lot of, in a lot of ways. Exactly. Bringing up Missler again, real quick before I get into this, uh, he, I can't remember what book it was. It was. Can I just clarify something? Yeah. When you said it was a boring book, and I said exactly, mm-hmm. it wasn't so much that I'm saying the Bible is a boring book, but I am agreeing with I, that I understand the sentiment. Okay. Because it's something that I have to work through as well. Right. I don't want people listening to go, oh, he thinks the Bible's boring. <laughs> Well, if it's a tool, it's it's vitally important to know how to use tools. Yeah. If you have a nail gun but you think it's a hammer, you're you're going to have a hard time. And I think one of the the issues with the western church is we're just given this is the unfallible word of God, you're 9 years old, go. Chuck was talking about it was Leviticus or Numbers and he goes this is a this is a much better book to be studied than read. And he blew my mind wide open. 
in all my years of reading it, I hadn't even distinguished the two. It, there's probably more, but two different ways in even approaching a book. We're just told, read the word, read the word. Oh, dude. Look, I remember when you mentioned that uh-huh. one time we were talking and I was like, that's the book I always die in in this tour through the Bible. Yeah. Like Leviticus is like, oh, God, like I made it through Exodus. We got through numbers. Leviticus? I I don't have that. I got <laughs> checked by the doctor. I, I'm I'm pure. I'm clean. Yeah. But I mean, there's so, yeah, there's books of law. We have books of law that are not written by. Uh, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? Mm-hmm. You don't pick it up and read it like a narrative. Exactly. You study it. Yeah. So we have books of law. We have historic books. We have poems. We have firsthand accounts. Like you have to know. It's a tool. You got to know how to use it. I was even. I even saw something. I on- guess probably better. I'm sorry, but just to extend off of something you said, mm-hmm. I think a probably more articulate or accurate way of describing the Bible. Okay. Why not just be calling it a tool? It's a multi-tool. Multi-tool. Yes. And you have to know which one of those tools to pull out in which situation and how to use each one of those correctly. Yeah. I saw something on social media, and this is a long tangent, but he was saying, I think it was a guy in church, and he was like, raise your hand if you've read the Bible cover to cover, start to finish. He's like, forget the maps and the, you know, all of that, but just Genesis to Revelation, raise your hand. And he's like, good for you. And he's like, if you end up going to heaven and you meet Amos... And he's like, what'd you think of my book? You're going to be like, uh, 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 well, I read the whole thing from start to finish, you know, but it, it, it's a multi-tool. I like that because it has a bunch of different functions mm-hmm. and you can't use one function. You can't do, use the, the function on one end to try to perform uh, a task that's not designed for. Exactly. I like that. But one thing that this multi-tool tells us is that we don't win the system, and you kind of helped me understand this, is we don't win by reforming Rome. That's not something we're tasked for. So in Mark 12, 17, uh, Jesus says, you know, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. A lot of people take that to mean that you're just supposed to pay taxes. But he follows it up with, and he said, and render to God the things that are God's. And everyone marveled at him. And they marveled at him because they understood what he was saying is that because we are made in the image of God the same way money was made in the image of Caesar, that we are supposed to give ourselves to God, our lives to God. A lot of people thought that Jesus came as the Messiah to provide supernatural military power to throw off the shackles of Rome because Israel was dominated by Rome at the time, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But that's not why he came. And that's one of the reasons that a lot of people had an issue with him is because they had a false expectation for what he was there to provide. That's, that's a message all on its own. Right. But he came to address the core issue, which is sin and the hearts of man. And I think one of the greatest miracles of all time was the conversion of Rome. Because you have this small group of people who discover the idea of Christ, right? Not just the idea, but the reality of Christ and and what he represents and the fact that he was real. And one idea, one heart at a time, even though it was illegal in Israel to be a Christian, even though it was illegal in Rome to be a Christian, for 380 years, it was illegal to be a Christian in Rome. And yet the numbers grew, heart by heart, idea by idea. They ended up taking over. They didn't 
you know, they didn't murder Caesar. They didn't burn down Rome, even though Nero tried to blame them for it. That's not how the change happened. It happened one step, one heart, one idea at a time. And if that is the power that is in truth, and that is the power that is in ideas, then we need to be extra careful when we're talking about movies that plant ideas, that slowly change our heart, that put a film over our eyes. Because the same thing that happened to Rome can happen to us, this slow growing of false ideas. And our, our whole character, our whole personality can be overtaken if, if we're not aware of the ideas that are being implanted. Right, right. Scripture also warns us that the price of these ideas is high. So Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My yoke is light. Uh, a misunderstanding or misinterpretation of this would be the fact that, well, if Jesus has a yoke and a burden, I don't want any part of it. <laughs> right. You know, because a lot of us think, especially in the land of the free and the home of the brave, any burden is unwanted. Right. But a lot of times we don't realize that we're always tethered to something. Right. It's the idea of freedom. You're, you're not free from, but you're free to. Right. Right. And what Jesus is trying to express is that the, the weight of following him is far lighter and far less than the actual price of adopting these satanic ideologies. It is interesting in this life, it does not always seem that way. It doesn't. Right. Even if you're not being persecuted, just the idea of having to put down your own flesh seems monumentally challenging on some days. Mm hmm. I'm like, how is this easier? It'd be so easier just to do what I want to do. Right. Not fighting this whole battle of what I really don't want to do. I'm just trying to do because you're telling me <laughs> I'm supposed to do it. Right. The, the clear answer is it's, it's what I want to do. It's right there. Right. I got it. I don't have to figure it out. I don't have to troubleshoot. I don't have to pray. I don't have to beseech. I ain't got to fast. All I got to do is do. Right, right. But the further away that we get from the precepts and the statutes of God, right, his rules, the things that he tells us, that burden, mm -hmm. the further away that we get from that, we see that suicide is on the rise. You know, there's the destruction of the family. And uh, like we were talking about, that a majority of people in prison come from broken homes. So there's a, there's a direct correlation there. Right. You know, and the like you were saying, the smallest element of a country and a nation is the family unit. And if that gets destroyed, it's just a matter of time before the entire country is destabilized. Exactly. These are expensive ideas. And speaking of expensive, the whole collapse of our monetary system by usury. Yeah, yeah, I was just reading a moment ago how the interest rates are increasing. Yeah, and it's all because of usury. Because of usury and fractional reserve banking, we had to come off of the gold standard. We had to give up a bunch of our land for the EPA. We had to get the petrodollar, the fiat currency. Like, we just keep changing things, and we're destroying the entire monetary system. A system, by the way, that was, that was created 
on an island that historically had Nephilim giants on it and was responsible for human sacrifice and usury. Like that's the physical space they went to to build the actual system that we're under today. Right, right. But, you know, a lot of people use the whole metric, well, if I'm not hurting anyone. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But when you look beyond just the, the the narrow myopic perspective of your life, your circle, what is happening to you and the people that you actually see and feel and touch, like look at the entire country and the entire country is coming apart. That's a much, much higher price. That's a much, much heavier burden than just individuals going, okay, even though I want to do this, Mm -hmm. even though I want to have this relationship, even though I want to whatever, take advantage of this, individually we make these itty-bitty sacrifices that are uncomfortable and it literally saves the world. (laughs) Yeah. So that is a much lighter burden. That's what Jesus is talking about there. But we get this misunderstanding. We adopt the... Um, the false reality uh, overlay by film that's put on our eyes, by propaganda and the movies that we watch. Like it's all tied to confuse us and distort us and think, oh, God's asking too much of me because of what I want selfishly when he's really looking at a a core and and root issue. I have been there and felt that. (laughs) And you are 100% spot on. You know, this this derive this demands a change of perspective. We've talked about that on on other episodes, the power of of perspective, how you see things. Right. Mm-hmm. The idea of you need a yoke for your own good. That's not the question. The question is the type of yoke that we're going to use. It's kind of like saying if you were in the airline industry, this this kind of this doesn't have the aspect of burden on it. Mm-hmm. But just from a conceptual standpoint. If you're in the airline industry and you have a wing, wings are heavy, right? There's It's metal. Okay. But if you build a wing out of carbon fiber, it's a lot lighter. It still has some weight to it, mm-hmm. right? If you had to lift it, it might be a little too heavy to lift. But try lifting a wing out of metal. It's kind of the same idea. Jesus' yoke is like carbon fiber. It's necessary to navigate the world that we live in and the environment that we're in. But it is not a yoke made of steel. Right. It is much lighter. It's not even a yoke made of titanium. Right, right, yeah. Which is a relatively light metal. Uh Uh-huh. This is carbon fiber. It's still a yoke. But nowhere near what you would have to be dealing with, with something like steel. Mm Mm-hmm. I like that analogy. Very, very descriptive. It's kind of interesting, again, we're not as agrarian in our thought process as we used to be, right? So even this concept of a yoke, I don't think most people know what a yoke is. At best, they might know an egg yoke. Well, with the price of eggs going up, more and more Might not even don't. know about that, right? <laughs> um, or maybe they know about the, the control surface and inside of a commercial airliner, you know, called a yoke. Okay. Um, but essentially, from from... This perspective, what scripture is talking about is the tool that they would use between a seasoned a seasoned ox mm-hmm. and an ox that was new, a green ox. You would put this device on both of them, and what it would do is restrict the movements 
of the 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 green ox. Okay. And it would have to basically you could think of it as a contraption that ties both of these oxes together. Mm-hmm. And its intent was to teach the younger ox how to how to perform by pairing it up with a seasoned ox. Okay. And preventing it from doing anything else but having to walk in lockstep with this seasoned ox. Okay. So when Jesus says his yoke, he's talking about us being paired up to him. Again, teaching us how to navigate our environment as opposed to being teamed up or paired up with Satan himself. Who would put the type of yoke on us that would be impossible to deal with. And it wouldn't even be geared towards us learning how to navigate this world correctly. Mm -hmm. It would be geared towards us learning how to navigate it incorrectly while crushing us in the process. Yeah. Totally different perspective. Right, right. That was that was good. I like that. Thanks, man. I think one of the the other things we can look at that scripture tells us is it scripture anticipates our enemy's ultimate goals, right? All right. It's not just the monetary system. It's not just anti-American, right? Let's just destroy America. The actual enemies that we're coming up against, they want to take us out completely. Humanity out, right? There's a there's a global agenda for the lives and the souls of people. So John 10.10 10 tells us that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, right? Yep. That's the enemy that we're up against. But sometimes it's it's hard to, even though we hear that, we hear the satanic things like do as thou wilt. Well, how is do as thou wilt coming to kill, steal, and destroy, right? Exactly. It doesn't make any sense. Right. Until you understand the dynamics a little bit. John 8.34, uh, Jesus says, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. And we touched on this a little bit earlier, but you don't really know you have a problem or the strength that something holds on you until you try to resist it. Like we all think that we want freedom to do whatever it is that we want to do, right? That untethered idea. But a drug addict really, really wants drugs. But there's no freedom in that. Mm -hmm. If he's pursuing the one thing, he or she is pursuing the one thing that they want, just that next fix. That's all they're focused on. That's all they want. Their whole life is bent to this particular goal. Sounds great, but it matters what the goal is. Like, what is the thing you're tethered to? Because drug addiction will ruin you. Do as you, do do as thou wilt, does not get you out of drug addiction. No, it It gets you into it. Right. Gets you way deeper. Right. So it's this subtle view to kill us, to destroy us, that do whatever you want. As long as it's not God's way, do whatever you want. Because really, anything outside of God's way is going to lead to our destruction. Exactly. It's like if you... (laughs) Yeah, you've got one way to make it through this thing unscathed. Do anything else but that one way. <laughs> anything. Right. Doesn't even matter. I'm mm-hmm. not even mad. You can pick the most debased thing. You can pick the most slightly off thing. Just do anything other than stick to that way. And I've got you. Mm-hmm. It may be quicker or maybe slower, but I've got you. Yeah. It's just a matter of time. It's it's crazy. But that's why, despite the cost and the discomfort of following Jesus, because there is a cost. He's one of the few, I don't want to say one of the few, but it's a rare, it's a rare interaction, a rare covenant where someone's like, consider the cost. Mm-hmm. Like car salesmen, just buy it, right? You can afford it, just buy it. Don't worry about what interest is going to be. 
especially real estate, you know, don't right. worry about what you're going to pay in interest. Don't consider the cost. Just get it. Just get involved. It would be, it would even be rare in a marriage situation for the, the engaged couple to be like, you need to consider what you're getting into. Now you should do this, right? but it's the rare ones that go, look, th- this is what it's going to cost you. Like, this is what it, it means to, to be married to me. Right. And I think this is one of the reasons that we can trust what the Bible says and we can trust Jesus's approach. There's, he doesn't have a PR person. He's going, look, I expect something from you. It's going to cost. But it's the discomfort and the cost of following Jesus where there is true freedom. And it's that power and that freedom that the movies are trying to prevent us from acquiring and seeing and desiring. It's precious ground that we can't afford to give up to the cinemas. And the cinemas are seeking to take that ground at every move. They are. Right? And that's because I think, like we were saying earlier, the entities that direct these, not just these projects, but the entities that direct these industries, they understand spiritual rules. They understand the value of taking ground, which is why rule number two is you can't cede any ground to your enemy. The Bible provides us the counter counteroffensive strike package that allows us to bring the assault to the enemy's doorstep. Right. This is yeah. really what people should get most excited about. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to have to sit down and maybe do some of the the grudging work, you know, studying scripture, if you will, mm-hmm. and kind of doing that basic training, the hard. Um, calisthenics of the spiritual walk, getting familiar with your armor set, learning the techniques for defensive strategy. But everybody bites at the bit to be offensive. Mm-hmm. You know, you go to basic training. When do we do firearms training? Yeah. We're going to do push-ups today. I don't want to do push-ups, and I don't want to <laughs> run. I want to shoot and blow some stuff up. That's all I want to do. That's it. That's why I joined this whole organization. <laughs> Else I would have been with Space Force. <laughs> Right. And I think God understands that. It's it's interesting that we have this idea that God is in many respects passive mm-hmm. and he is not. He is incredibly active yes. and in some respects, incredibly hostile. He's not hostile to humanity, but he, he is incredibly jealous, not of humanity, but for humanity. I like that. Right. And when you're jealous for something you're actually seeking to protect it for its best good. When you're jealous of something, you're seeking to ultimately destroy that thing that you obsess over. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. If you can't have it, nobody else can. Right. But that's not what God sent, what, what divine jealousy is like. Divine jealousy is I am I am so preoccupied with this thing that I care for that I do not want anything to harm it. And I will fight tooth and nail to make sure that it has the best chance of survival. I like that. The um, perverted jealousy turns that affection inward in, in a selfish fashion and says, I am so preoccupied with this thing that I want my experience with that above all else. And I will deny anybody else an experience with it. Yeah. That's it's a, a weird version. Another inversion. Yeah. Yeah. And so when God under when taking into account the fact that God understands that he's fighting for humanity and he is incredibly hostile to the enemies of humanity. 
right? But thankfully, he hasn't just left us on our own. He's given us tools to defend ourselves. It's kind of why I get a little irritated with these 2A arguments where people are like anti-gun. Okay. Just on a concept alone, I, I realize that there are a lot of poor things that are done with guns, mm-hmm. right? But there are also a lot of poor things that are done with cars. We still drive those. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of things that are done with food that's incredibly horrible, you know, as far as detrimental impacts to society, but we still eat. Yes. The idea God's given us the abilities to defend ourselves. I don't think we should take those tools away. I would agree. Now, when it comes to spiritual battles, when you're engaged with a spiritual entity, a, a, a earthly tool doesn't work. But when you are dealing with earthly entities that are emissaries for those spiritual entities, earthly tools do work. Yeah. They work quite well. Uh huh. It's just, we're not essentially fighting earthly opponents. Yeah. We are primarily fighting spiritual entities. And thankfully God has given us tools, weapons to take that fight to those entities. Mm -hmm. Right. But every sort of conflict is governed by rules of engagement. There are things that we're supposed to do. And there are things that unfortunately we're not allowed to do. Be that as it may, scripture does give us offensive weapons and Mm -hmm. it gives us offensive tactics. Three things we're allowed to do. What are they? You expose the position of your enemy because the reality is our enemy is creeping in. I got you. Constantly trying to make inroads into places and territories that we've seized, trying to take it back. And hopefully you don't find yourself out there alone because that's not the intent. The intent would be that you're out there with your fellow soldier. Mm -hmm. But sometimes people run AWOL. It happens. Yeah. Sometimes people get a little skittish when the enemy roars. Right. And they, they leave you out there. <laughs> I don't know why I just had the envision of the mummy. <laughs> he's like, you're with me. Aren't you Benny? He's like, Oh, your strength gives me strength. Like 10 seconds later. He's <laughs> bailed. <laughs> now I want to watch that. <laughs> yeah. Daddy! You're with me on this one, right? Oh, your strength gives me strength. And then he's shot. Yeah. Brandon Frazier wasn't even shook. He was like, I knew he was going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. But (laughs) you know that it happens and, but you still have to function under these, these tactics. So you expose the position and then you return fire. You return suppression fire. That's what you call opposing. So we get the authorization for exposing from Ephesians 511. Don't have any fellowship with the works of darkness that you're about to see. Just expose them. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And then resist them. James five, seven, subject yourself to the authority of scripture. Use that authority to resist the devil. Then tear them down. I love this. I mean, it's such a militarized tactical step here. Okay. First thing, discover the enemy. Yeah. Second thing, lay down suppressive fire. Third thing, bring in the heavy guns, drop the J dams. To the 2,000-pound bombs, laser guys at bombs, whatever you got to do, call in artillery, lay down some destructive fire. If you got to call Bring in the rain. cluster bombs, absolutely, <laughs> bring it. Love it. Mm-hmm. You know what this is? This isn't passive. No, it's you not. You completely destroy the enemy's encampment, right? 2 Corinthians 10.5, demolish every argument, every pretension that sets itself up against what God has said is true. 
That means things that man said is true that's in opposition to what God said is true, destroy them. These are the things that keep people from knowing God. This is what scripture talks about as suppression of truth. Yes. This is good stuff. Like this means I get to get, I get, I get to get eyes on target. I get to engage. Mm -hmm. I get to destroy some things. Yeah. But you don't destroy people as much as possible. Right. You destroy ideas. You destroy the ideas and you engage the spiritual entities that are seeding those ideas. You engage the institutions that are purporting those ideas. You engage the products that are carrying those ideas. That's what we do. And that takes work. That's how I know this is an active engagement. Yeah. So if you're passive and you're sitting back, you know, you're not readily engaged. You're not doing much for the fight. Mm -hmm. You're not really helping. You're like Benny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that takes us to, to rule number three. And it's pray like it's all up to God and work like it's all up to us. So one thing I think that we can pray about is that God change our hearts and show us, supernaturally show us the things that are leading us astray. Because it's not always easy to see. Yeah, you know, that's thing, why you need discernment. Right, right. I think we can pray for protection from a world, both natural and supernatural, that aims to take us out. They are coming for us. Whether, like you said, whether it be that slow fade, you know, that just leading you down a long, dark alley that you're not going to make it out of, or, you know, something as simple as distracting you while driving, which ends way quicker. The, the, <laughs> right. The enemy is looking for anything to take us out. Yeah. And and if we're in that supernatural war, then we need to be engaged, both um, cognizant of the physical and the spiritual. And God offers that type of protection. That's dope. I think we should also pray for the courage to stand against the tidal pressure of society. Because as movies set the habits and the ideas of a culture, and we are pushing back against the movies, in a very real sense, we are pushing back against the, the changing tides in culture. That's unpopular. I like this, man. I, I was actually thinking earlier today about... How often I think the types of prayers that we put out are low level. Okay. And if I was a, if I, if I'm involved in, let's say black arts, uh, let me, let me put it this way. The church in many respects functions as law enforcement. That's what we were intended to do. Spiritual law enforcement. Mm -hmm. But too often, I think our focus is on petty crimes. Okay. And if I'm dealing in major crimes, right? Yeah. I don't care that law enforcement is focused on petty crime. I mean, I care, but only in the sense that I'm not worried because they're not focusing on the stuff I'm doing. Right. Like if you're on your way to a homicide, you don't care that someone's jaywalking. I mean, essentially, that that type of shift in perspective. Is that is that what you're saying? Well... Yeah, if I was the one about to commit a homicide, I'm not worried about law enforcement stopping me because they're only focused on jaywalking. Gotcha. I see what you're saying. That's worse than where, where I'm coming from. And I think sometimes the prayers that we put up are like that. You know, they're very... You're saying my prayers that I listed are weak? No. I'm talking about <laughs> how we as an organization often function. Okay. Especially when it comes to prayer. Like, if there's a problem, I don't think prayer is the first thing we think about. It's probably the 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 last thing. You know, we first and, think Vanilla Ice. 
Because if there's a problem, yo, he'll solve it. Wow. Wow. I don't... Yes. I don't have a bleep button. <laughs> I never thought to this moment that I would need one. We don't censor on this show. Obviously, we should. <laughs> it's clear that we don't. But we really should. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. But, yeah, dude, I, if if we if it comes to prayer, most of the times we're, we're not, first off, thinking about doing that uh, as the primary response to an issue. So we put that off to the very end. And then when we actually do engage it, it's typically dealing with stuff related just to us. Okay. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, maybe you get a person that's a little more spiritual, a little more developed, and they'll start praying for their immediate vicinity. Maybe it's going to be some people in their in their family, right? Mm -hmm. Or maybe some issues they see in their family. But that's going to probably be onesie-twosies type deal. Okay. What we're not dealing with are spiritual councils, systems of wickedness, entities, principalities, we're not dealing with spirits that are over key aspects of our society. Like Hollywood. Yeah, or let's say spirits attached to officers of government. Okay. Right? We're not engaging that individually, which would be dangerous, just individually. Mm -hmm. But we're certainly not engaging it corporately. Okay. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Uh-huh. And I think it's important for us to begin to elevate our perspective on how we engage our enemy. Like Laura Sanger's spiritual mapping, yeah, that kind of stuff. That's dope. Yeah, yeah, that changes the mindset of the church. Mm -hmm. I think it's so critical for us to do that because, like, if, if imagine if you were the enemy of the church, I wonder what prayers could be directed to you that you'd be worried. Ooh, I like that. Right? What are the ones where you're like, <laughs> "That's it. That's all you got." All right. If your one's like, shut her mouth. Yeah. Do not let her pray. I like that concept. Close his 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 vocal cords. Do not let him speak. Because those are the prayers you want to be sending up. Exactly. That's the heavy artillery. I like that. You don't want to confuse a nine millimeter for a fifty cal. No. Right? You don't want to confuse a grenade for a five hundred pound bomb. No. I mean, grenade'll do some damage. Yeah. It's not like a 500-pound bomb. Right. <laughs> Completely different thing. Right. And I think it's important to begin to adopt that. So this is, what I'm saying is nothing directly to what we just went through with prayers. It was just a thought that I've been having as to how, as a body, I think we, not them, but we need to begin to elevate how we function with prayer. I would agree. I like that. Th that one's going to marinate. Marinate. What's the other word we use for that? I don't know, but I'm hungry. So, so don't pick use another marinate. word. Yeah. That was going to fester. That's good. <laughs> fester does not remind me of food. Oh, that's funny. But with, with prayer comes a, a responsibility of action. Yeah, you got to do both. Can't just do one. Exactly. And so I think that there's a work that needs to be done as well on the individual as well as the corporate level. Mm -hmm. You know, individually, I, I think we should begin to change how we watch and engage with movies, you know, shift our interaction with media. Okay. We've mentioned that before a little bit. Yeah. Like maybe turn the lights on, maybe pause the movie halfway through. Yeah. I'd say even more frequently pause it. Ask yourself, what did I, what have I watched? I used to do this with reading books. Like what have I read? 
Okay. Just that practice of pausing begins to break the cycle. And I can, I can, you know who I hear right now? What? Mr. Skept. We haven't heard Mr. <laughs> Skept for a minute. What's Mr. Skept saying? <laughs> Mr. Skept, what you got? But if if I do that, it'll ruin the it'll ruin the movie. It'll yes. ruin the whole experience. Exactly. That is exactly what we want to do. We want to ruin the experience because part of that experience is lulling you to sleep so that you are a victim of the things that are being put forth. Yeah. I mean, me knowing what I know, when you say pause halfway through or several places, I'm having a visceral response to that information now. Like, it's, it seems very off-putting. Yeah. Like, don't interrupt my movie. I don't want to pause. Right. But it, it, it's that visceral response is why you need to pause the movie. Here's the hope. You know, that's a first step uh-huh. scenario is physically pausing. What what hopefully it produces are mental pauses. Yes. If, if you can get to the point where you can do mental pauses, then you don't have to physically pause. But you have to be very disciplined to do that because it's easier to get lulled into the trap that the movie presents mm-hmm. if you're just relying on mental pauses. Right. Now, something else practical to do, turn on captions. Yes. That is actually, I think, probably one of the better suggestions. Okay. Because constantly having to read the dialogue engages a totally different part of your brain from just watching. Okay. Right? You mm-hmm. have to engage the material differently. And for some respects, it's it slows it down a bit. No, that makes sense. It's harder at first to learn that trick to do, but it also opens up a whole nother channel, if you will, of of interaction with the the film mm-hmm. or the content. It doesn't have to be a film, right? Right. You're literally reading the dialogue, and you're processing what you're hearing, but you're getting to actually see. Oh, that's really what they say. Sometimes what you hear is not what they say. Yeah, it's weird how often. It it's doesn't align. Yep. Sometimes they didn't say it clearly. They didn't enunciate properly. It just sounds like this other thing. Mm-hmm. And you're like, that's what they were saying? That's just not what it sounded like. <laughs> well, one time I had to do this with this film is Poultry Gods. It's a, it's a great scene. With, you talk- with Ronan. Okay. I was like, they're worshiping chickens on Xander. <laughs> Not that type of paltry. <laughs> I didn't know. Like, it's such an intense scene. And then I go back. I was like, wait, what did he actually say? They got chicken gods on here. I didn't even know that. Right. <laughs> Turned captions on. I was like, that makes church's oh. chicken sound totally different. <laughs> church's chicken. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't even know. That was a whole temple of paltry gods. That's what they was after. <laughs> that is priceless. Uh, For those who don't live in the Midwest, there is a, there is a, a franchise of a chicken establishment that's called Church's Chicken. Church's Chicken. And unfortunately, stereotypically, <laughs> a lot of people go there after church. Okay. I've never gone to one after church. You never gone? Uh-uh. We'll, ha- we'll have to break you in. I'm never going to be able to see it now without hearing Ronan in, <laughs> in my head. Denounce your poultry god. Yeah, it's completely, completely ruined. <laughs> that's funny. Um. Something else that I think could be done is is writing down what you see. Now, I know for people, okay, reading the t- reading the caption, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. Pausing the movie, certainly don't want to do that. Writing down, no. Okay, here's the thing. 
something has to change if something's going to change. Yes. You have to do something different. What you what I need to disabuse people of right now is the is the the notion that I can somehow continue to watch movies the way that I want to and I will I will put myself in a position not to be deceived through osmosis. Yeah. Right? It's just going to happen magically. It, it will not happen. Right. You have to do something different. One of my favorite quotes, I think the first time I heard it was on uh, NCIS, but it it's if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what, what you've, you've always, always gotten. Had. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've heard that before, and that's spot on. Um, another thing to do is talk to people about what you actually saw in the movie. You know, they say you remember 90% of what you teach, so teach people about your movie-going experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of times that when you and I just talk back and forth, like stuff comes out of that. You analyze it a little bit different. You remember it better just discussing those concepts with someone. Exactly. And then something I think that would actually help is taking a show like this and share it. Yeah. You know, get this message out. People need to understand not just about Guardians of the Galaxy, but to a larger degree, the false false reality overlay that we encounter through films because it puts a film over your eyes and how you see the world is in many ways reflective of how you behave and navigate through it. Right. So go having a false reality overlay in between you really changes and augments your behavioral pattern. And so people need to hear topics like this mm-hmm. and our fans do we say this all the time. Our, our, our listeners have been phenomenal they in have. getting the show out. So yeah. I would say continue to share the show. Yeah, I mean, we share sh- stuff that we like. Yeah. Like Ryan Airy from Screen Crush, the new rock stars, you know, just for, for movie breakdowns. Because we don't have all the answers. No single person has all the answers, so share it. Right, right. You know, it's it's helpful for everyone involved. The other thing that you can do <laughs> is consider joining our Patreon. We got lots of cool stuff in there. We do. Lots of li- lots of clips. Three tiers, cover fire for five, only five bucks, you get all the links and resources and full-length episodes of our podcast. And we started doing this little bonus thing called debriefing. We'll throw that in there, too. We, we're trying to keep adding stuff in the uh, in the Patreon to... Uh, um, kind of to, say thank you. Yeah, to, to give back. Yeah. Uh, second, second tier is Overwatch. It's $7 a month. Gets you everything in the $5 tier but also gets you access to the actual studio notes that we use while running the episode. And those are cool because it gives you a little bit behind the scenes. Sometimes there's some um, inside jokes in this one. There's a few things that we didn't cover conceptually, thematic things that we just, that don't have time to make it in the episode. But a lot of times either the images or the the write-ups or or whatever are, are in the studio notes. So those are available to anyone in that and that second tier. And then the last one, Bring the Rain, $10. That's the big one. To everything in the other tiers, plus a weekly Zoom call with both Jason and I. Uh, Scratch that, bro. Hey. What? I am way too busy for a weekly Zoom call. Did I say weekly? You did. Ooh, nope, nope. I My mean, I, I would say you're equally as busy. Yeah, yeah, no. I did not mean weekly. I don't know why I said that. Monthly, <laughs> monthly. Sorry, 12 times a year. Unfortunately, we haven't gotten enough patrons to move to a weekly Zoom call. If we got enough. We would be very happy to do that. Yeah. Right. But we're just not there yet. Not yet. We're, We're getting there. That's funny.
we just had our first Zoom call, and it was it was epic. Right. It was dope. Yeah, I can't wait for the next one. And I think that one's going to be even more fun. Oh, for sure. For I, sure. The one thing about those, though, the, the more people you, you have on there, the more the interaction you get. But it's really cool to have a chance to meet listeners. Mm-hmm. And some of the stuff they ask you is like, <laughs> it's stuff you don't think about. Yeah. Right. And they come at you from a totally different, uh, a totally different direction mm-hmm. than what you normally encounter, which is cool. But I, I enjoy just getting a chance to meet the people that listen to the show and have a chance to interact with them. Yeah. It's, it's awesome. We, so we, we get something out of that just and, as much. And hopefully they get something out of it. Yeah. Well. Yeah. We, we, we try to make it some, some good, <laughs> but here's the last thing you, you can do. Remind yourself of what scripture tells us which is that we are never alone and we are not fighting alone. God has promised to never leave us. I just want to pause there for a minute. Okay. I've seen a rise in social media where God leaves the 99 to find the one. Have you seen that? Uh, We've talked about it a lot, but I haven't seen it in social media. I've seen it arise in social media lately. I thought it had finally died out because this reckless love idea I don't think that's the big danger in it. It's this idea that God leaves the 99. That's not what the Bible says, because you can't leave the 99 and get the one if he never leaves you and forsakes you. The song is wrong. The song is heresy. God promises to never leave us or forsake us. That's the truth. Turn the stupid music off. (laughs) Anyway, never leave us or forsake us, but we have a community of believers all over the country, and all over the world. If you're plugged into the Operation Red Pill community, we got people all over the world. And most importantly, we have a God who intervenes on our behalf. Because one day, the pursuit of our hearts will be pure. One day, the things we enjoy won't be at the behest of satanic rulers. One day, our eyes will be full of light and not covered in film. But until then, we are deployed to this dystopian rock where we have to filter through embedded messages in movies, TV shows, and video games in order to remove the film that they have put over our eyes. Oh. That's our acapella finish. And James Gunn, if you're listening, is... The Gnostic inversion, the last Easter egg that no one was able to find? Yeah, no, that's not the answer. (laughs) Might be. You don't know. Whatever.